Comic Geek Speak presents The Crisis Tapes, Episode 16, Crisis on Infinite Earths, Issue 4, Part 1. I'm Adam Murdo. I'm Peter Rios. All right. Well, been a little while, but time is meaningless in the time of crisis anyway, so. Do people remember what this is? Uh, <laughs> our fans have pretty long memories. When we're talking about a 30-plus-year-old comic story, and everyone seems to remember that just fine. That's so. true. That's true. We and, haven't been retconned out yet. And we're in the same studio. How about that? Yeah. It's how we started. And then when we were doing the uh, – and then uh, when you did the two – last two monitoring the monitor episodes, you were by yourself. And then mm-hmm. when we got back to the issues, it was all been – it's all been Skype. But here we are, like your famous image that you always say that we are. The, That's right. Alan Scott and Dr. Occult communing over our mis- respective mystic artifacts. and uh, Right. With the tick action figure in the middle. <laughs> Here in the CGS, lovely CGS studio. Ah, hello again, studio. <laughs> yes, all its beloved clutter surrounding us. <laughs> um, so what you been up to? How's the crisis? Is, has the crisis been resonating since the last time we did uh, an episode? Or mm, I'm afraid its echoes are uh, deadening a little bit. Okay. I mean, you realize it's been uh, like 11 years since I wrote my thesis, so I feel a little bit estranged from my own work at this point. Mm-hmm, but, uh, mm-hmm. bef- I, I sit down and kind of uh, review it before every one of these things that we do. Right. And this is the first one we've done since, I think, May of last year. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while, mm-hmm. but... You know, if people are just listening to it, you know, casually, time, like you said, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter. Yeah. And it is, uh, as we record this, early November, and, uh, you know, the ramp up to the Christmas season is beginning. I'm sure uh, Erin is feeling feeling that, too, in her sector of the giftware industry. But still taking some time out here to talk about uh, one of our most uh, beloved stories in all of the history of the superhero genre. So there's been some crisis stuff happening on TV and in comics that I thought might be fun just to do a quick rundown. It kind of dates the episode, but that's okay. Um, well, the comics will, and the shows will still exist at whatever point in time people come to this episode. Right. So why not? Uh, but uh, do beware of spoilers, though. I, I have an idea of at least one of the things you're going to talk about, and I am not up to date. Yeah, and I'm not going to go in depth. I just th- I'm just going to, like, there's a, a list. Like, obviously, the Supergirl TV show in season two. Are you caught up on Supergirl? Yeah, yeah I well, am on that. Where they did the Superman crossover, one of the promo images was the Superman actor carrying Melissa Benoist in a very Crisis Number 7 homage. Mm-hmm. They've been doing a lot of promos that are uh, indicative of comic covers. So I thought that was really cool. And um, uh, there's a, a, the, the crossover for this season between all the shows has a very multiverse – cover image you know with the heads you know the borders on the the heads on the borders oh like, yeah they did a whole thing about that i think it's even called crisis on earth x or something like that neat yeah all the little uh yeah yeah so it's like the uh, jla jsa crossovers of the um of the silver and bronze age. yeah yeah um there's a, a cover to a book called pathfinder from dynamite 
num- uh, and issue number one, it's Pathfinder Worldscape. I don't know if you can see that. I'm holding it up on my tiny iPhone. I can see something that looks a lot like the cover to Crisis number seven. Yeah, that came out a while back, um, and I picked that up because, of course, I would because it's a, it's a Crisis homage cover. So Pathfinder Worldscape from Dynamite, one of the variants for issue number one. Is a clear Crisis Seven homage, which I thought was great. You can see that from all the way across the table. Yep, and you know, again, not going to go into spoilers, but DC's metal event right now is touching on a ton of stuff that can relate back to the crisis. Um, And I was just—I put a a late order into DCBS for the uh, October previews for book shipping in December, and Grant Morrison has a new Clouds. Claws uh, one shot called Claws and the Crisis in Xmasville. Christmas, X, well, no, it's Xmasville. So that's styled that way, yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure if that's just a tongue in cheek kind of reference, but I saw the word and I thought, ah, crisis. With Morrison writing, it's probably a little more than that. Yeah. Um, so that was it. That was it. Just, you know, just some fun stuff that seems to be popping up um, concurrently while we do these these podcasts now for uh, those of our listeners who might be hungry to hear you say a little bit more about uh, the metal event where might they go Peter, <laughs> to find a few more extensive comments of yours on that very subject yeah well uh you can go to like the earth two version of footnotes which i'm calling breakdown like a breakdown it's basically the same concept really it's just a different name because cgs owns fa- footnotes <laughs> yeah. even though we created it yeah, the trademark's gonna lapse pretty soon yeah <laughs> we keep threatening to do uh superman annual number 11 you know for the man who has everything oh that's a great one yeah yep yeah, so before the end of this year i'd like to see us do it but you know scheduling you know absolutely absolutely yeah so um and it's not like we invented the term footnotes I mean, no certainly not no. <laughs> But anyway, so uh, over on the Daily Rios, Rios, I do uh, a series of episodes on metal, going through and making the connections just like we do here and and trying to help readers uh, connect to larger ideas and DCU concepts. And um, it's been fun. It's been fun kind of digging in and, and realizing Scott Snyder is going pretty big with this story. Um and it's just as kooky as every DC event tends to be. There's a lot of DC pseudoscience that is going on uh, that's kind of fun to mine. So, yeah, I've done a, a, an episode on um, every issue, the, the Forge, the casting, issue one, issue two, an episode on the ash can that they gave out prior to the event. Oh, I didn't even see that. Yeah, I think it came out at C2E2 this year. Hmm. And then... The, the last one I, I released was on tie-ins between issue two and three. And then I just recorded issue three, but I haven't released it yet. So I'm sure it'll be out by the time this episode airs as well. So, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Yeah. I've read only as far as uh, – I did The Forge and the casting, and I, I've read number one, I think. But I'm mm-hmm. not going any further until I go check out uh, your, your comments. On oh, the cool. Rios. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, I would love to hear what you think about it. I'm sure you're going to have – like like this event, the way we go back and forth on, back and forth on this, I'm sure you're going to have some uh, interesting reactions to some of the things I said and, oh. and your own thoughts, which uh, yeah. I look forward to hearing. Yeah. Yep. Well, as of right now, I'm pretty sure that my reactions to those issues were le- fewer in number and lesser in detail and volume than yours. But I, I'm sure I'll have more to re- responses to your responses than to the actual material. <laughs> cool. Cool. 
Um, I actually got an email from a listener um, through through the Daily Rios, uh, Robert Kelly. He's from Pennsylvania. He said the Crisis Tapes, one of the Crisis Tapes episodes, was his first podcast. First one he ever listened to on any topic. Uh, I, I, I have to assume so, or maybe wow. his first comic one, or maybe his first CGS one. Um, that's pretty hefty stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Considering how talky we get. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's uh, well. Thank you, Robert, for letting us be your bridge into the wonderful world of podcasting. All right, that's about as much preamble as I have. What about you? I don't know. Did we want to respond to anything that uh, folks said on the Talkbat thread for the uh, last one we did, episode fifteen? Oh, do you have that up? Because I don't. I don't, but I do have a browser window. Okay. And if I just type, oh, wouldn't you know? It's a browser window that has not been opened to thecomicforums.vanillaforums.com <laughs> recently, so I actually have to type out the whole thing. Do you think that thread will be easy to find? Uh, well, I was able to find it pretty easily last Oh, okay. Time. Great. It's very searchable. So just go to that thing, then type in crisis tapes. And while Adam's doing that, if, if this is, you know, first time you've ever been listening to a crisis tapes episode... It's a spinoff of what CGS used to do called the footnotes, which we talked about a little bit, um, where we are going to go through page by page, cover to cover, sometimes panel by panel. And this is a deep exploration of the crisis event um, from back in 1985. Um, Adam wrote a thesis on the crisis, and um, I'm just someone who's obsessed with uh, events. So... Uh, we thought let's let's dig into this series and and try to see why it still resonates. Uh, you know, here we are, how many years later, and it's still a play within not only the DC universe but in comics fandom and other publishers. And, oh yes, it's yeah. still sending huge shockwaves throughout this genre that we love so well. Yeah. You know, even if all people are doing is picking it apart and. Uh, you know, denying it, renouncing it. I mean, that whole convergence thing a little while ago, they kind of said in the final issue, oh, yeah, by the way, we just went back in time off panel and uh, made this story that means so much to a generation of fans not exist anymore. Mm. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. I don't think that's going to hold any water with anybody. <laughs> right. <laughs> not with Scott Snyder either. Yeah. The looks of things. Yeah. Um, well, oh, yeah, there, there's uh, about a page worth of uh, comments here. Uh, from our last episode covering the uh, back half of uh, crisis number three. A uh, listener named uh, DM Hate, um, well, H-A-I-G-H-T. I'll put a quarter in the jar for you if I'm pronouncing that wrong, and I apologize in advance. Uh, but uh, thinking of Hate Ashbury, I'm thinking that's how it probably should be pronounced. And uh, he wrote quite a, a bit, actually, to us. Uh, let's see. Another great episode of fun-filled facts about the crisis. In spite of having read this story dozens of times over the years, you both bring several new and interesting nuances to each issue that make these review episodes a true joy to listen to. Well, thank you, DM. A few comments about some specific topics you covered. All right, this first one's kind of a kudos to you, Peter. On the four characters in the Old West, so we're talking Firebrand, Simon, John Stewart, Green Lantern, and Cyborg, uh, being equivalents of the Fantastic Four, I think that's brilliant, and I agree it can't be a coincidence, Marv Wolfman wrote the FF in the late 70s, and this may be nostalgia on DM's part talking, but I happen to think it's one of the better overall runs on that title. In the interviews when he talks about creating the new Teen Titans, Wolfman has been quoted as saying that he thought of the Titans as DC's answer to the FF as opposed to the X-Men. That's Wolfman. true. That's true. Hmm? Yep. I would never have guessed. I kind of think DC thought of them as their answer to the X-Men, but uh, Marv is the writer. 
So his opinion counts more than most. I really think Wolfman has a fondness for the FF and wouldn't be surprised at all if he saw the likeness of Simon, Cyborg, Green Lantern, and Firebrand to Reed, Ben, Sue, and Johnny when he laid out the plot of which the 15 were going to work together in the various time eras. And that's <laughs> even more interesting topic uh, right now in the fall of 2017 when we know DC's putting out a mock Fantastic Four title of their own called The Terrifics. Can't wait for that. Yeah, it could be silly fun. It's an interesting combination of characters, Plastic Man... Mr. Terrific, you know, the Michael Holt version, Metamorpho and uh, Phase, as a.k.a. Shadow Lass of the Le- – um, no, not that. Phantom Girl of the yeah. Legion. It's curious. <sighs> it's a curious mix of characters there. Yep. If they just uh, treat it as something more than a bad joke, uh, it could be an interesting series. Um, so let's see. I like your explanation on the last page of the issue uh, showing the monitors similar to other pa- images on the left side that are clearly monitor screens. Uh, oh, it's, it's talking about the uh, the convention of uh, rounded corners mm-hmm. in panels. You know, it's, it's a big Parisian uh, convention of the of the of the eighties. You know, just a you know, video saturated era that they were uh, those those eighties. Um, so uh, he he would quite often do that, just to use the you know, mediation of, uh, of of monitor screens uh, to accentuate the things that he's showing right. in his panels. Uh, let's see. In regard to using the cr- – this is all still from DM Hate. Like I said, he, he wrote some extensive posts here. In regard to using the crisis characters, Pariah, Harbinger, etc., and Wolfman's uh, – yeah, he, he's really done his homework. Uh, he's uh, – I'm kind of jealous of his uh, familiarity with these uh, fan press publications. Uh, he, he's uh, mentioning a couple of different issues of Amazing Heroes in this long post, um, some interviews that Wolfman did that I, I don't think I've ever read. Um, According to Wolfman's uh, comments in Amazing Heroes number 66, uh, this discussion makes me think of how other post-crisis articles discuss the original plans to literally start everything over from scratch, you know, new number one issues, all the characters' histories completely rebooted, you know, pretty much what they did with the new 52 in 2011. Um, if DC Editorial had allowed that plan to proceed, I suspect the crisis characters would have been written out of existence. In fact, I wonder if their continued presence in the pages of the DCU contributed to the notion of leftovers or vestiges of the crisis remaining that ultimately resulted in the likes of Zero Hour. So I guess what he's uh, getting at here is if they had just somehow killed off or negated crisis-specific characters like Alexander – well, Harbinger and Pariah and Lady Quark who were seen around the DCU after crisis, if that would have decreased the temptation on the part of certain writers and editors to allow pre-crisis stuff to seep back in and uh, right. kind of undermine the foundation of the post-crisis DCU from the get-go. And he may indeed have a point. Um, he talks about uh, Dan Mishkin uh, providing input to Marv Wolfman about uh, how his character Amethyst should be used, apparently several pages worth. Um, as I'm reading along in your coverage, I've started pulling out both the individual issues and the trade, which has the same changes you've noted from the hardcover editions. They're pretty noticeable when you really stop to look at them, and i got to say, in most cases, I prefer the original, notwithstanding the flexograph printing errors in issue one, or when you get to issue ten, that whole bottom section of the monitor tapes, after which this podcast is named. I remember noting when number ten was published how hard that section was to make out. The hardcover really helps. And then uh, DM comes back in with another quick note. Uh, forgot to give my example of preferring the original over the trade paperback colorization. The shadow demons in the original issues, they're all black. In the trade paperback version, they're colored like a light gray. Definitely prefer the black. Uh, do you want to keep going here? Uh, Nathan P. Monty. 
uh-huh. has the same sort of thing that uh, DM Hate kind of was suggesting. He said, what, what do people think? Would DC continuity be better off today if instead of doing the crisis, they had just shifted focus to, say, Earth-7 and started over from scratch? People say that the multiple Earths were too confusing, but really the solution to that is just not to mention them. Shift to a new Earth, give that its own unified continuity, similar to the post-crisis DCU, and rarely bring up Earth 1, 2, etc. Seems simpler to me. I really like that idea, actually. Really? Yeah, I think they probably would have solved their problems. If they yeah. could have just – instead of eliminating those Earths, thereby ticking off longtime readers, they could simply have jumped over to – somebody a little later on down here um, – yeah, it's, it's right, the very next poster, Alpine Maps, who's been along one of our crisis kids from way back. Uh, he he re- responds to Nathan and says, uh, uh, that was my preference back in 1985, and I'd say even to this day I would have been fine with that. Just shift focus to a new Earth. It happened organically in the late 50s when we jumped from Earth 2 to Earth 1. Just make it happen now. Well, 1985 now. So, yeah, yeah, and, and I've kind of been secretly hoping all along that that's all the new 52 has been, that the pre-Flashpoint reality still exists on some other parallel Earth, and we've just been – but uh, we, we've seen pretty strong hints that uh, that's actually not what happened. Right, uh, right. Just going back to the, the DCU rebirth uh, – well, no, the, the button actually is what I'm thinking of. Uh, that's a crossover between Batman and The Flash written by Tom King, um, where The Flash senses the vibrations – uh, he, I mean they go back to the Flashpoint reality and they discover, oh, wait, this is still our Earth. It's just time has been mucked with. Right. So you know, if, if we're ever going to have any hope of getting the pre-Flashpoint reality back, it's not going to be just as simple as hopping from New 52 Earth over to Earth Zero or whatever it was. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I'm going to say that I, I'm on board with that idea of yours, Nathan. Thank you for sharing it with us. Uh, Alpine Maps also says on his own behalf, I'm about 90 minutes into the uh, – well, uh, I had to comment before finishing the episode because, Peter, your theory of Superman of Earth-1 blew my mind. I love it, and I really hope that it happens. However, I'm convinced it will never happen, and sure enough, it, it didn't. I don't think they will ever acknowledge that our pre-crisis Earth-1 Superman is a different character from the post-crisis Burn Superman. That slight started with who's who and continues to this day. Thank you for bringing that up, Alpine Maps. It always did bother me that while all these other characters got like a Earth-2 entry in the first volume of who's who and then – a pre-crisis entry, and then just got updated in the 1987 update. Superman just jumped straight from Earth 2 to John Byrne. As did Wonder Woman. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. Um, And he's referencing the theory that I had about Superman of Earth 1 and and Rebirth, like Mm -hmm. being behind uh, uh, in the DC Rebirth one-shot special. Mm -hmm. So that's the theory that he's talking about. Kind of like uh, Earth 2 Superman and the rest of the Hole in the Wall gang were in Infinite Crisis. Yeah, yeah. I will hold out hope, though, that this – if there's one character that we haven't seen in 30 years, it's Earth-1 Superman. Peter, your logic is sound. I sure hope it plays out that way. And again, it didn't, but it was yeah. it was still a cool idea. Yeah. Alien Al has uh, – real quick here just to clear this up. He says, I'm listening to part two, and you guys are talking about how the Legion of Superheroes with its size didn't have any more members die in crisis except for Kid Psycho. I always thought of Supergirl as a member. Maybe you just consider her a reservist, or maybe you just meant the deaths up to issue three. Actually, what for? I think for this story, 
she is Superman family related, oh, yeah. not Legion of Superheroes related. Right. So, Her involvement with the Legion is really not touched on. Yeah. I mean, we, you see Brainiac 5 crying. Well, I think it's on the cover of number seven, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that's about as close to a. a a gloss of her uh, relationship with the Legion as you get in this series. Right. So if you list her affiliations, you know, super the Superman family is going to precede her connection to the Legion. So that's By why far. right. That's why I make that little bit of delineation there. Yeah. yeah but Al's point is fair. She is technically a Legionnaire. And then as we'll see when we get around to talk about the crossovers, I mean Brainiac Five is mourning her loss in a bit more depth right. in one of those. Um, oh, and here's one thing that I was mulling over on the drive over here, actually. Another post from DM Hate. Uh, hey, all just had to leave another comment since I found a copy of that Amazing Heroes issue he was talking about. And while reading through it, I found a very intriguing tidbit I'd like to hear Adam and Peter and any others comment on. Marv Wolfman in this uh, interview is describing what the post-crisis Earth will look like or what he thought it would look like at the time that article saw print, which is sometime in 1985, I think, like early 1985. Uh, And the third paragraph reads as follows. Although the overall plan is to have all DC's multiple Earths collapsed into one, they will still be a part of DC history. Earth 1 and Earth 2 will have existed, will have mattered. We're not denying them. All-Star Squadron will still be placed on Earth 2. There will be some past that will never have existed. Not much. It's being done with the best of intentions and as much care as possible. Now back to DM talking. Now correct me if I'm mistaken, but that's not ultimately how the post-crisis history uh, panned out. That said, I would have loved to have seen this idea explored more. Can you imagine a DCU where from 1985 onward was integrated into a single universe while the past was still acknowledged the presence of multiple Earths? Now, I know that's probably why they ended up choosing not to do it, the potential for such a turn to make things even more complicated. But then, as I said in my earlier post, I never found the multiple Earths concept to be the problem. And frankly, given the current state of the modern DCU, I think most people feel the same. What do you think? Would it have been better to allow the past to have kept the multiple Earth references? I don't think DC would have had a prayer of accomplishing what they thought they were out to accomplish at the time if they had gone that way. A lot of people would have been happier, I think, if they'd allowed that to remain a part of established historical canon. But you know, if their if their aim was supposedly to streamline and simplify for the sake of new readers, then what they were doing was the right way to attempt to accomplish that. Right, and I'm sure once we, you know, 50 years from now when we get to the end of. <laughs> Our footnotes of crisis. Um, 2025, baby. Mark your calendars. um, uh, There is that strange limbo period between the end of crisis and I guess you could say Man of Steel. Right. Or whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Yeah, in the, in like, like some issues of the Superman comics and DC Comics Presents where everybody's clearly on one Earth, but it's still like post-crisis version, uh, pre-crisis versions of Superman and Luthor interacting with them. Right, right. And, uh, you know, I think at one point you said uh, something like the shockwaves just haven't solidified mm. yet. And, uh, and I always bring up uh, Roy Thomas's All-Star Squadron where he allowed – he made sure Earth 2 and the memories thereof persisted at least until the end of his tenure as writer there. And he explained the uh, android from the future mechanique, you know, that refugee from Fritz Lang's Metropolis film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, she was responsible for holding the uh, retroactive history-altering effects of Crisis at Bay until a certain point. Yeah, because that series continued on after the crisis for 
uh, what maybe about ten issues? I yeah, think? just about. Yeah, uh, final issue was like sixty five. It was mid to late sixties, and the, the last several issues were just like secret origin stories, basically of the various squadron members. Um, but yeah, the last issue of that series that did not contain a secret origin story was it began with like a big picture. Like a photograph of uh, – like a group photo of all the All-Star Squadron members, including Earth 2, Superman, and Batman and so forth. And then by the end of that issue, Mechanique did whatever she did to allow Crisis to fully affect reality. And then suddenly, whoosh, never, uh, memories of Earth 2 and the variant doppelganger versions of those characters disappeared, and we're shown the same photograph at the end. And instead of Earth 2, Superman, and so forth, uh, they're replaced by all those characters that had gone to Earth X. All those Golden Age characters who were freedom fighters. Right. In the new reality, of course, there was no Earth-X. The freedom fighters never split off and went to Earth-X. So they were around for the photo. And so, like, Uncle Sam took the place of Superman and, and so forth. And if you think about it, that's not even the last bit of revisionism because Young All-Stars really is the replacement characters for – Superman, Iron, Iron Monroe, Wonder Woman is Fury, mm-hmm. like Batman, so, Flying Fox. Yeah, so even even the end of All Star Squadron isn't quite yet the 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 Golden Age history that we would eventually have. Right, because so. Roy Thomas understood history pours a vacuum, so he came up with those characters as a way of explaining like who took the place of those now non-existent Earth Two characters in the uh, 1940s part of the unified DC history. Right, right. So it's a, that's a that's an interesting time period and it is kind of interesting though that we did kind of get what he's speculating here because think of Infinite Crisis where all those stories existed, they went back and they said, "Oh no, there was all this there were these timelines and then the crisis happened and you don't remember but it it still happened it's still there same thing with flashpoint you know where they merged the three different uh, corners of the DC universe yeah. and less convincingly the second time around right though. right um um it all it all matters it, it's all there. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of keeping it straight. That's what in, Wade and Morrison were trying to say with Hypertime yeah. at the 99, too. Like, yeah. every single story matters. Everything, even the imaginary stories. Every single story anyone's ever read and loved in a DC comic exists somewhere in the endless eddies of Hypertime. <laughs> and now no one's dared mention that word at DC Comics for nearly 20 years. Right, right. Bit of a shame. Great. Well, we always love feedback, so please, by all means, um, whether it's uh, on the forum or if you want to send an email, uh, you can do that um, because we love to hear what people have to say. Keep them cards and letters coming. We even heard from our old friend Solitaire Rose, who was uh, the last on the string here, responding to to DM Hate's last point. So, hi, Corey. (laughs) Okay. All right. So, so we settle in then and... uh... Dig into the uh, meat of the matter here. Let's do it. All right. Crisis on Infinite Earths number four. All right. So this is – when I was doing my master's thesis, I was kind of arbitrarily separating the crisis text out into three four-issue arcs. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. this issue – and we were saying to each other before we started recording, we'll see how far we get in the time frame we have available here. We might get through the whole issue. We might just do half and call it a day. Or or if we do have time, maybe we'll just split it up, uh, do two episodes. That way we'll have the one episodes, and then we don't have to worry about recording again. But we still have another one in the can for later. Maybe just to 
give you guys a chance to work up an appetite again for yeah. this stuff and then release it a few weeks down the line. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so this, uh, this issue will constitute the end of the first act, and uh, it's a doozy of a cliffhanger at the end of the issue. But uh, beginning uh, with the cover, I suppose. Now, uh, not, uh, <laughs> not too much hyperbole here. Uh, the, the blurb at the front is, This is it! The end of the world! <laughs> and below it, a really great Perezian image. You know, just a um, monitor, uh, the, the form of the harbinger, you know, her hand still crackling with energy, the smoking gun, if you will, hovering over the prone and lifeless form of the monitor with a huge smoking hole in his chest, a trail of pink energy leaching from it, and Pariah just standing by looking horrified, which is pretty much his entire range as a character. And uh, then the uh, rather redundant arrow-shaped caption, Death of the Monitor, you know, just in case you missed it. I love the overhead perspective. The perspective on this is fantastic. I mean, just the, the all the geometrical shapes and the the different all the monitors all over. There's a yeah. kind of a sense of claustrophobia yet depth, and mm-hmm. and ah, oh, it's such a brilliant cover. Yes, totally Perez, and also totally eighties. Again, like the, the claustrophobia, paranoia thing, big part of eighties storytelling, and again with the monitor screen, that uh, the, the video mania that I mentioned too. What an intensely mediated decade the eighties were. This is the Perez that I love. This is, you know, look at Pariah's sleeves and the detail of his body language as he tries on this narrow little observation platform to get as far away from the monitor's corpse as he can. Right, Harbinger just walking in space, like not flying, but walking on air and. The cape, the details in all in the in the two capes, um, the muscular, the the anatomy on ah, this this is this is what I wish was always in the inside of the book. Um, um, but Perez inking himself would just that would have taken way too long, yeah. you know. But it's a stunning stunning image, and I also like the whole Trinity aspect here. So I wrote in my notes. Um, this is like the crisis trinity, father, uh, not son, but daughter, and pariah as kind of like the Holy Ghost. Like, mm. it, it, there's, there could be something to that. As I was looking at it, I was like, I, oh, crisis trinity. I kind of <laughs> like that. I, I like that too. Yeah. I mean, Jesus never killed Yahweh, of course, but, <laughs> <laughs> but overlooking that. Yeah. Uh, it's more like kind of a, I don't know, maybe a Zeus and Saturn situation. Could be, or, yeah. Mythological. Well, yeah. no, of course, I'm mixing you know, Zeus and Kronos. Kronos, right. Or, yeah, yeah. Or Jupiter and Saturn, if you yeah. prefer. Um, yeah, but that, that's that's uh, you know, just to get a little bit heady on, on that cover. All right. So let's let's dig into the first page. So normally what we like to do with um, um, these uh, crisis uh, footnotes is we'll go through and give a quick outline of a whole sequence, but then go back page by page to really dig in and and try to get some information. So, like, for this first one, um, we'll cover the whole Supergirl, Batgirl that goes all the way almost to the end of page three, but then we'll go back and, and talk uh, specifically. So, do you want to do that? All right. Uh, okay, so Supergirl enters the picture for the first time in this series, which is a series that's pretty closely identified with her retroactively because of what uh, she does and what is done to her later on. Uh, but we have a meeting between uh, a little explored uh, sort of adjunct of the world's finest. It's like the, uh, uh, the, 
the, the, the women's annex of the world's finest duo, Supergirl and Batgirl. Uh, Batgirl has uh, put in an emergency call to Supergirl, apparently just uh, for a little bit of therapeutic chat because Batgirl is scared out of her mind. So the two of them meet on a Gotham rooftop. rooftop. And uh, they discuss um, the, the terrible danger they believe the world is in. Batgirl reveals her the, the fear and angst and self-doubt that are plaguing her right now, all but paralyzing her. And in the middle of their conversation, Supergirl flies off to uh, rescue a, um, a distressed aviator from the uh, antimatter wave. And uh, that just uh, serves to make Batgirl feel even more worthless than she did before. And that uh, covers most of the first three pages. Um, but let's just get some surfacey things out of the way first, and then we'll dig in. First of all, there's two spelling mistakes on the first page. I caught them too, Did you <laughs> which are corrected in the uh, trade paperback of the or the hardcover edition. Right. So the word occurring and the word aligned. Aligned. Yep. Right. There's uh, only one R in occurring when there should be two, and there are two L's in aligned when there should be one, and both of those were caught by the editors of the uh, trade edition. Great. Um, artistically, there's some really great stuff, um, in, in this series that has a lot to do with like people watching and the, of course the word monitor, right. You know, mm-hmm. I, I always, I'm starting to pick up more and more on that. And, um, you know, Batgirl whipping out her bat binoculars and, and watching all this stuff. Right. Um, and then Para's designing those four page, four panels where Supergirl is rescuing the, the pilot. And it's seen through her binoculars. And uh, um, there's something to be said about not only just witnessing it uh, through a device, but, um, you know, Batgirl, her thoughts on Supergirl, you know, the the whole idea of seeing these heroes go through the crisis, seeing these heroes in action, the way they see them, the way whatever it is they use to see. I mean, there's a lot. There's some... It's sort of superficial layers, but I think it does resonate a little bit here. And, uh, well, yeah, Wolfman and Perez did something somewhat – I mean there's one scene in issue number three where uh, Batgirl's occasional lover Nightwing is uh, doing much the same thing. We get yeah. a quick image seen through his binoculars, which I'm sure are similar Batcave issue. Yeah, and I mean – and Supergirl on page two, like with her X-ray vision, you know, like she's monitoring the whole mm-hmm. situation. and It's what members of the Bat family do. You know, yeah. They observe, they analyze, and when the time comes, they, they, they strategize and they act. Except uh, those faculties in Batgirl are temporarily offline because yeah. she's going through some things. Yeah. All right. What are you, what are some thoughts you have for this sequence? Uh well, let's see. Well, the, the first image we see of Supergirl, she's uh, a somewhat unusual choice. She's not even facing us. We we get uh, kind of a three quarter from the rear image of her as she's flying down towards uh, the uh, skyscraper spire on which Batgirl is perched. So um, we all but see up her skirt. Uh, but it's just kind of unusual that uh, we're not seeing her head on. As a, That's a more typical establishing shot for something like this. Um, and she's uh, kind of musing to herself as she goes uh, that she's that she hasn't – I haven't heard from Barbara in months. She sounded so frightened, not that I blame her. And then she goes on to muse, but then I've lived through my planet crumbling around me. I've experienced firsthand the terror you feel as your world dies. Not even my cousin Kal-El can say that. And he was still an infant when he was rocketed from Krypton. So this is this is a way of giving some credit to Kara Zor-El. Mm-hmm. And the one way in which she can be given credit for 
being stronger than her cousin and that she has actually survived consciously the death of a world. You know, she was uh, a young teenager when uh, she escaped the destruction of Krypton while cousin Kala was just a baby. So she can keep her head in, in, in this situation of crisis because she has weathered such a situation before. Yeah, I, I had the same exact note. I wrote, she's made of sterner stuff, as this scene and later issues suggest. Right. She's able to keep herself collected enough to make the conscious decision to make the sacrifice that she'll eventually make. Right. I mean, if you think of Superman, he, he his, the whole um, last son of Krypton, um, it was always about him not knowing his world, you know, at least initially. Like, think of the John Byrne Superman, where he had no knowledge of what Krypton was and... Um, and and yet Supergirl does. So she truly is a daughter of two worlds as opposed to Superman who gets a little bit loftier about what Krypton could be because he's never really exper- right. he, excuse me, experienced it. He idealizes it. Right? Yeah, he, yeah. I mean he, he's, he's been there multiple times. He's right. gone back in time. You know, he's actually interacted with his parents. But yeah, he didn't really live there, wasn't really a part of the culture and did not firsthand experience its destruction. Right. And just to kind of – again, I know this dates the episode, but there is an episode of Supergirl this season – or is it – yeah, this season. And this is no big spoiler, but they just show her escaping from Krypton from the point of view inside the, the rocket ship. Mm. So it's like the viewer is her and you're seeing it take off and how it swirls around while the planet is – crumbling and it turns around and you see a lot of the debris and it's the first time i think i've ever seen the classic escape from krypton told that way right because Um, usually it's an infant that's doing it yeah or it's from the outside you see the rocket ship from the outside but this was right you were right in the seat like a like a disney ride you know Hmm. And, and i was like whoa that was that was great and you heard her i think you heard you can hear her kind of panting and, and in fear. Yeah, and, I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, great, great image. So when I when I went back to read this, I just quick made that connection again and thought, ah, oh, yeah, you know, she lived it. She experienced right. it more this, so than Superman. This is what she's got in her personal, uh, in her list of strengths that Superman does not. Um. Okay, so then she descends to where Batgirl is sitting, and so we see... I really, I don't think I've ever really read a comic other than this one that features Kara and Barbara interacting. You know, they must have happened sometime in right. the 60s or 70s. But, uh, I mean, can you remember? No, I, I'm not familiar with it either, but um, I guess it's just one of those familiar by – the familiarity that they share is because of the characters that they were spawned from, Superman and Batman. So, of course, it makes sense right, that they're, Superman... They're big brother figures or friends, so... Yeah, yeah, but you're right. I haven't ever really read that. Not to say that it's not out there in some world's right. finest comic. Or, can't imagine it's not. Or Superman family, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Before we do... I'm sorry. Let, can I go back to page one? Always. Um, You kind of have to... <laughs> you kind of have to ignore the physics of what they're saying about the stars... The stars seem to be affected. Constellations are no longer aligned as usual because really if something was going on on that kind of universal cosmic scale, stuff would be ripped apart, Gravity, uh, gravitational forces. You know, if you know your Star Trek, if you blow up a star, stuff is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So um, I love the imagery that we see the stars in little clusters as opposed to being all over the background. But as I was reading, that, I was like, 
Oh, right. Okay. Well, f- they're playing a little bit loose in physics. <laughs> um, because if that happened, uh, I think it w- we wouldn't be reading this story if mm. it was truly happening. <clears throat> and then I did have a question of how slowly is this cloud moving? <laughs> it's moving as slow as we need the story to develop, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But... so naturally on Earth 1, it's going to move more slowly than anywhere else. Yeah. Oh, one other thing on uh, page one. Uh, quote, the electrical mayhem occurring over every part of our fragile Earth. Muppet reference? Oh, I'm not getting it. The electric mayhem? Oh. Is Dr. Teeth and Animal <laughs> going to show up? That's funny. This story has everybody. That is funny. Okay, now I'm ready for page two. That was for Shane. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, page two. Supergirl comes down and finds Batgirl perched on her ledge, and she's looking through those bat binoculars we mentioned. And uh, she's just kind of she, – she's kind of shell-shocked, Batgirl is, and she's – I think she just called Supergirl not to aid in the emergency so much as to just have a shoulder to cry on. And uh, she's just saying to herself, the city, it's so empty. Mostly everyone is staying inside with their loved ones, accentuating that, awaiting the end. Now – I'm thinking Barbara might have been in an on-again, off-again relationship with Jason Bard at this time. Hmm. And probably more off-again than on-again. And she's, she says they're all awaiting the end. I, I think this time it's really coming. Now, in this panel and in some of the other panels and word balloons that follows, Barbara's always been one of the more astute characters in the DC universe. She's a skilled detective, very perceptive on many levels. You know, it's, it's why she eventually... Really came into her own as an information broker in the uh, post-crisis era. Mm-hmm. But here she's displaying more than a lot of other characters in this sprawling story, a sort of meta-awareness. Like she realizes that uh, they, they've had all these false alarms of, of, on uh, literally a monthly basis. The world is uh, threatening to come to an end in these superhero comics in, in which they all live. And, and she's perceiving somehow that this is different. Like she's – a kind of an instinct in her that a lot of other characters don't have, and she's, you know, cracks are forming in this nice, safe, conventional little dream zone that the superheroes inhabit. This uh, repetitive cycle of uh, fight the villain, nobody ever actually gets hurt, nobody actually dies, very little changes. She senses the true changes on the horizon, and she gains a kind of insight into her own meaningless. At the she's having some moments of existential angst and ennui here. She's. She's having a crisis of faith mm-hmm. in, 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 you know, if you want to put that to – in crisis terms. Oh, yeah. We always do. Yeah, crisis of the soul, crisis of faith, which was technically supposed to be the sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths, crisis of the soul. And then yeah. they retitled it Legends? Yeah, yeah. It became eventually that story. Well, I think they totally revamped the story and then it became Legends. Yeah, yeah. That was, there's a great article in one of the back issues about it um, that uh, – I don't know if you've ever read that. But I'm sure I haven't. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's a whole – there was a whole new villain behind it. and Oh, you have to read it. I'll send it to you. I'll send you – tell you what number it is. I'll look okay. it up. It's fantastic. See for myself whether I think that story would have been better than the legends we yeah, got. Yeah, But I do – what you know to backtrack on what you were saying about Barbara in this. She's – first of all, I think it's a great character uh, – it's, it's a great Marv Wolfman scene. Um, to personalize this story, not just from um, in terms of comic books and heroes and villains, but like the people behind the masks and what you're saying, you know, that insight into Barbara and showcasing the difference between differences between her and Supergirl. And then this scene, when you think about 
the Superman Batman scene that we got in issue three or issue issue two maybe or keep, which, keep talking I'll, yeah I'll, whichever one where they me. where they were like on the rooftop together and you know Superman and Batman are well they're Superman and Batman <laughs> you know so Marv Wolfman is kind of exploring the event and crisis through their hero personas whereas this one is through Barbara and she even says to Supergirl she calls her Linda right so it's like more through their personal personas which i i I really like uh that uh superman batman scene was uh issue two page 14 there you go there you go yeah and actually i'd amend that a little bit Mm -hmm. um i mean they're they're referring to each other by their first names but i think batgirl is reaching sorry barbara is reaching out to linda as person and friend but because she She's affected by what she can see about the nature of this event that Supergirl, for all her visual powers, hasn't quite caught on to yet. Because she's talking back to Barbara more as fellow hero and colleague. You know, she's mm-hmm. Spew- mm-hmm. Supergirl is still spewing the standard superhero chin up. There must be a way to stop that. There's always hope. I'm not ready to give in so easily. Barbara is pouring her heart out to her, saying, "Look, just look. Think about this. Um, we, we do what we do because we think we never can get hurt, but now." Now Barbara's starting to realize that uh, the life that they're living has just been a repetitive popular fiction and that is now being overhauled, revised, and tossed out uh, to make way for a new format for a new generation of readers. And so she realizes nothing and no one is safe. She's realizing her own vulnerability, her own mortality. She hasn't quite articulated it to herself, but her fictionality, the arbitrariness of all the, uh, the the lives of comic book characters. And she's like, look, Linda, you can feel that way because you've got these great powers and you're also more marketable than I am, <laughs> subtext. I just I'm, – I'm just human Barbara Gordon right now, uh, clinging to that because it's what defines me beyond being just Batgirl, this living Mego doll that DC can publish and market. And now I'm, I, Barbara, am afraid that uh, my uh, relevance as Batgirl is a threat and I feel so useless, so helpless, so worthless, and so very, very scared. She's saying that to Supergirl, and Supergirl isn't quite hearing her words for what Barbara intends them to be and – or for what uh, the uh, meta subtext might be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's just – but Supergirl being a hero through and through, perhaps more hero than person – Barbara repeats a couple of times that uh, Supergirl is a hero through and through. All she's thinking of and all she's seeing is the danger posed to her fellow fictional denizens of the DC universe and what she might be able to do to help them. Existential angst apparently can't uh, touch a Kryptonian, (laughs) at least not in the pre-crisis era. And this is a great setup for what we will see of – certainly of Supergirl in later issues and and Batgirl in – uh, post-crisis DC universe. So as they're thinking about these characters in terms of marketing or in terms of uh, intellectual properties, you have to imagine that they probably early on were thinking, okay, we need to clean slate a little bit. Mm-hmm. Not only is it, a, is it a wiping away of the different Earths, we need to get back to what makes some of these characters unique or at least iconic. And if that means... We need to get rid of Supergirl because we want Superman to be the sole survivor mm. again, even though that didn't last long. No. Um, were they thinking the same thing about Batman? You know, she, she's saying here, what have I become? What have I become? You know, they're probably already thinking a vestigial limb, 
a liability. Yeah, yeah, you know. A barnacle to be scraped off the hull of a great heroic icon. <laughs> Not that either of us agree with that, but that does right. seem to be what DC was thinking at the time. I mean, you know, in all of our monitoring, the monitor episodes, you know, the, the two that I was on, the two that you, the two that you finished up. Was Batgirl ever – she was not necessarily around in the Bat books, or if she was, she was more in her barber persona. Because I can remember reading stories like in Detective uh, where if it seemed like if she was around, it was as Barbara or Commissioner Gordon's daughter as opposed to Batgirl. I didn't read a lot of Batgirl comics in the in the you know the 80, 80s comics leading up to this because she, she wasn't present. There was no Batman family book, and um, uh, the one story I, that stands out the most is when Commissioner Gordon had a heart attack because Harvey Bullock played a prank on him, and then he's in the hospital, and she goes to visit, but someone tries to, I think, maybe come in and kill Commissioner Gordon, so she has to run, right? And she's, like, having all these flashbacks to her high school and college and all that, but she's Barbara Gordon. She's not Batgirl, hmm. and it's beautifully drawn by Gene Colan, so... Um, so it's from that era. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, she's talking here, and I'm as a reader, I can remember going, "Yeah, I don't know who you are either," because I really haven't <laughs> read a lot of between 1982 and 1985. Were there a lot of Batgirl comics? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think she'd had her backup series for a while. Yeah, and I know they did do that Batgirl special, and I'm pretty sure that was post-crisis and pre-Killing Joke. Right. Right. So clearly they had plans for these two characters, and, and I think it's a nice setup that we're getting here for that. Whether they knew what the outcome was or not, right? Like that's what people have to understand. This this book is ever fluctuating, and I'm sure the behind-the-scenes behind stuff, they might have had some idea, but then, you know, two months later they could go, okay, wait, we want to do this now. So – uh, this is, uh, in hindsight, I'm saying this is a nice scene for what will become mm. of these characters. So. Yeah. One panel down here at the bottom where Barbara says, I, I don't think I was ever cut out for playing hero. And at the time, it, it sounds a bit like a confession of personal weakness or unfitness for her chosen career path. But uh, in post-crisis, as you say, this is a good foreshadowing for uh, – ultimately, she comes to the same conclusion, but for – a very different reason. Right, right. You know, she's not cut out for jumping around on rooftops when she could be doing something else, i.e. being Oracle, that actually is of much more help yeah. to uh, the, uh, the elimination of crime in the world. I mean, there's plenty of people to jump around on rooftops and kick uh, the bug-eyed bandit in the face. <laughs> but uh, not very many people can do what Barbara Gordon, you know, eidetic memory, master researcher and information trafficker can do. And in truth, she really did do much more to help the crime-fighting community doing that than she ever did running around as Batgirl. Right. And that's a great panel. Perez's her, – her, her, eye, her eyelids are very low. She has a frown. Her face almost feels like it's like overweight, like it's drooping, like mm. it's just – the weight of, the, of what's happening is on her in that panel. I love that. Hand lifted up to grasp her own shoulder as if bolstering herself for the emotional weight she's carrying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm, yes, I see what you mean. A couple other things here. Um, so one of the bit of dialogue here, some villains too have disappeared. And we've seen that in, in one of the previous issues where Simon disappeared. I think last we, – we were having a little confusion. Was was it that 
uh, a shadow demon was bursting in front of him or did he really disappear because it didn't have the same effect. But we sort of know that he probably disappeared because um, Brainiac is collecting villains. But when I read that bit of dialogue in this, I thought, oh, you know, this is this is earlier than I remember that subplot happening in my initial reading of it all. I, I was like, oh. Well, yeah, villains are disappearing because we're 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 going to get a villain war later. No, so. I hadn't even thought about that. I was yeah. I was just thinking of Simon and Doctor Polaris. You know, the villains at the Monitor snatched up to go as part of his fifteen summoned team. Oh, that could be too. Yeah, sure, that could be that. I I I take that point. I take that point. Um, but you know, it was just last issue that Brainiac was seen, and he uh, makes his way to Earth to. Although he his first thought is only the one named Luthor can help me now. Yeah. So I would imagine he would grab Luthor before he grabs anybody else. I guess you're right because she does – the full quote is, and other heroes, some villains too, have disappeared. So she probably is referencing the great 15 that we talked about. So, yeah, you're probably right on that one. Yeah. I like that Perez uses the X-ray vision, but nobody actually mentions that she's using it. She just uses it, whether it was a Marv Wolfman script thing, a Perez art additional thing, whatever – it's part of what uh, it's part of her character, so she just uses it, and nobody has to explain it and whatever. So I, I, I always like that. Yeah. If you were a Supergirl or a Superman, you'd probably be using it constantly. Just to, in the course of having a casual conversation, you're just scanning for miles around for anyone who might need your help. And she finds uh, that airplane to rescue, and it leads me to wonder if. Uh, Maybe the creators of the Supergirl TV series were thinking about this scene when they uh, put together the first episode. Oh, that's right, where she saves the plane. Yeah. Right. And if you're wondering why Supergirl looks the way she does, um, again, I guess that's another character that wasn't prominent during the monitoring the monitor tapes, right? We didn't really necessarily have an issue where Supergirl was involved. Um, I'm sure we didn't. Yeah, so uh, in time for the movie, they decided to upgrade her costume, and one of the elements that they brought in was this headband, which is a throwback to, as they explain it, her Kryptonian heritage. It was meant to be evocative of that world. Also evocative of uh, 80s fashion and Olivia Newton-John. And- <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But at least they had an in-story precedent to it that you know sort of made sense. Yes, it worked out beautifully. I never even thought of that. But mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the way Jor-El, for example, was drawn in a lot of Silver and Bronze Age stories, he, he was wearing a headband. Right, right. I think the first time you see her costume, she uh, she – I want to say actually when you look at the first – cover uh, i think it's like supergirl daring adventures of supergirl 13 she may not have the headband on even though she has the new costume on the cover but she does put it on in the book and she does make a reference to like you know i'm going to respect my kryptonian heritage Mm. nice so this is not the first time that uh, readers saw this costume in this issue then no um, I will research that as you talk about other things but i don't i don't think it is i'm pretty sure we've already seen it Ah, well, let's see. What else do I have to say here? Um, So Supergirl sees the plane, flies off to uh, rescue it, or the pilot at least. Uh, Somehow his plane cracks up in the antimatter, but but he pops out of it unharmed, almost like an 80s G.I. Joe cartoon. And uh, Supergirl flies in and saves him, and as as we've discussed, uh, Batgirl has her bat binoculars out and is watching the whole thing. This characters watching other characters becomes kind of a mini pocket theme. Um, of what's going on here, of, of, of this crisis series. Um, 
and uh, Batgirl just muses to herself that uh, how jealous she is of uh, Supergirl's heroism and her ability to just put a maybe it's just because that Batgirl is uh, more gifted and more thorough thinker than Supergirl is. Might just be the difference in personality and cerebrality between the two of them. But, uh, thought and memory have kind of been Batgirl's most important superpowers and certainly served her well as Oracle. But uh, she just is chastising herself for not being the hero through and through that Kara is. Or you know, just scolding herself for her humanity, and which is... Uh, we, from our point of view as readers, understand is really one of her proponent strengths. Yeah. And those wonderful little Parisian uh, POV binocular panels. Yeah, she uh, she got her costume in um, August of 1983. So this is well before um, her appearance here. Mm. So we've been living with that new costume for a while. <laughs> Yep, and it makes the Olivia Newton-John connection even more plausible. Yeah. <laughs> and what about that pilot? I mean, he's like, you know, why, why'd you save me? We're going to die anyway. It's almost like he meant to fly into that. I mean, you kind of pull that from that bit of dialogue. Yep. And Supergirl responds with another typically superheroic platitude. We fight to live as long as we can. That's the only way to live and to be able to live with yourself. It's just like another dagger in poor, conflicted Barbara's heart. <laughs> What have I become? He's become a minor supporting character and probably expendable. And she knows it. So, if you've never listened to A Crisis Taste before, that's three pages in, not even, and we're at what now? Uh, 57 minutes, not quite an hour, but we, we did a lot of preliminary stuff, yeah, too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. The talkback things, engaging with our listeners, whose input we always appreciate. And now, yeah, we're, we're still not done with page three because we've got a little... Really weird, awkwardly – it's sort of awkwardly teetering uh, over two pages, this little scene here. It's like three pages uh, – three panels at the bottom of page three and a row of panels at the top of page four. Curious placement and composition there, but it's, it's a scene between uh, Steve Dayton, a.k.a. Mento, uh, so half member or hanger-on of the Doom Patrol back in the – Silver Age and kind of a supporting character in Marv Wolfman's New Teen Titans. And uh, John Constantine, mysterious uh, British magician who was a supporting character in the very popular saga of the Swamp Thing as written by Alan Moore at that time. So just a quick uh, little parlor scene between the two of them as they uh, talk about uh, what's happening to the universe and uh, how each of them chooses to respond to it. Dayton chooses to drink himself into a stupor and Constantine chooses to just sit there smugly and... Uh, complacently and uh, tell Dayton that he already knows how everything's going to turn out. So what, me worry? <laughs> so that is that thing. The three panels here on page three. It's set at the East Hampton estate of Steve Dayton, the world's fifth richest man, according to the 1985 rankings, and also the foster parent of Garfield Logan, you know, Changeling, known these days as Beast Boy once again. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, he had uh, adopted uh, Gar some years ago. He and Rita Farr, Elastigirl, who's been dead for some time, only member of the original Doom Patrol that stayed dead. And so Steve Dayton had been kind of hanging around in the new Teen Titans, as written by Wolfman. He hadn't quite uh, gone bananas, hadn't put on his malfunctioning Mento helmet and gone nuts and formed the the hybrid and been a villain. So, But, but he is kind of 
you kind of got the impression that uh, thanks to what's happening in crisis and possibly other things happening in his life, he's already beginning on that downward spiral. Yeah, yeah. That's a note that I had, yeah. So he's uh, – so the, th- these three panels at the bottom of page three are just him drinking. He's got an extensive little bar here in his den, and he's uh, pouring himself another glass from a crystal decanter. And Constantine is trying to tell him to snap out of it, and Dayton just says, you're a little – you're so self-assured you cannot see the very world crumbling around you. Admirable, my longtime friend. So this character who hasn't really been, existed in the comics for very long has got to – a retconned longtime friendship with Steve Dayton, we're told. Right. In fact, this is Constantine. Uh, Constantine first appeared in Swamp Thing 37. I'm going to insist on Constantine. Constantine, Peter. sorry, Constantine. Because in other media, it's Constantine. It's, but right. Alan Moore went out of his way to tell us that it's Constantine right. rhymes with sign. Right. Okay. I stand chided. Uh, so chided. Around. All right. I'm putting away the wet noodle now. <laughs> um. So he first appeared in Swamp Thing 37. I don't know if it was Saga, the Swamp Thing at that point, or Sophisticated Spent, whatever. I'm not sure either. Yeah. Um, and when Crisis, when this issue hit, they were only up to Swamp Thing 38. So he is so much wet cement at this point. Um, and I think it's fascinating that, number one, like all events, I always think this way, that uh, events are a way to showcase your new characters sometimes introduce characters, as the crisis certainly does. Um, But here's a character that hasn't even really been handed to the readers um, from Alan Moore's hands, and we're already getting him into the DC universe beyond just Swamp Thing. So um, I think it might surprise people to know that he makes an appearance in this issue or in this event, as small as it is. This is obviously the first... I think one of the first times this event really does a push to to get readers to read something else from their line. Um, as he says there, uh, I know what's happening to one and all, and especially to the Swamp Thing. Yes, especially to him. Short of not, you know, they don't have a footnotes there, but you almost want to say, see... Current issues of Swamp Thing to find out the rest of the adventures of John Constantine, right? Yeah, and eventually they do, you know, get towards that kind of hucksterism. Yeah, but this is, I think, for for you know, we're in four we're in four issues deep, and this is the first time I really felt that that push. Um, so I think that's not bad for an, for an event that sometimes people think the whole event was like a way to say, go read this, go read that, go read that. I'm like, well, actually, I feel like this is the first one and when we're in issue four. So yeah. that's kind of good. Yeah, their, their focus was just on cleaning up the line, getting mm-hmm, their big mm-hmm. goals in mind before. Yeah, so they, they really weren't focused until later on to the uh, – they weren't attuned to the cross-promotional possibilities of this thing. They had loftier goals in mind. Yeah, and it just speaks to the whole thing of John Constantine being part of the DC universe. You know, We think of him as just being a Swamp Thing character, but here he is here. Um, he actually shows up in New Teen Titans, the Baxter run, like once. Um, but still, you know, John Constantine is – he's a DCU character. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I know I, I went back and forth with some people when the New 52 hit and they pulled – or no, Brightest Day when they pulled Constantine out of Vertigo and back into the DCU. And they're like, no, he's not – that's wrong. And it's like, well, that's not wrong actually. I mean – he is a DCU character. Yeah, as was Swamp Thing at yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. So. Without question. So to have him here in this book, it's sort of like, 
<clears throat> you can't get any more DCU than the crisis. So, yep. So his his provenance as DCU character is established right here. Yeah. But you know, the first time I read this, I and then this is going back a long, a great many years, of course. But mm-hmm. I was it really kind of surprised me because what I knew of uh, of Constantine. And by then he was pretty well entrenched in Vertigo and uh, you know, in the Hellblazer series. And just you know, for one thing, his appearance at the top of this page, clean shaven, neatly dressed, you know, no five o'clock shadow or rumpled trench coat or any of that stuff. Dayton looks more like uh, you know, the Constantine I had come to recognize mm-hmm. from the Vertigo covers I'd seen because at that point I was still a young teenager in my local com- – in Pagoda Comics, my local comic shop at the time, didn't let – people younger than 18 buy vertigo comics oh wow so yeah i didn't i wasn't that familiar with him but uh, i was a little surprised to see him so uh well groomed and also surprised to hear him thinking about the swamp thing because i didn't realize until this that he uh, first appeared in the dcu as a supporting character to the swamp thing i thought of him as a more of a man of the world you know getting getting himself involved with all kinds of mystic messes all over the place but, yeah, apparently originally he was there to be as kind of a spirit guide to the Swamp Thing to help him explore and realize his full potential as Elemental. Right, right. And uh, weathering this crisis, I guess, would be a part of that uh, agenda of his, mm-hmm. which is the only reason why he's allowing himself to be seen in the midst of this tacky multiversal uh, crossover thing that's happening. Yeah. And for this to be his second or third appearance within DC Comics, um, you know, I certainly understand that. It could feel a little forced, you know, them <laughs> making that connection to Steve Dayton, where I don't know if they ever really make that connection again. Um, uh, well, uh, I'm, I'm referring to the, uh, the ICG uh, official crisis index. Apparently, the next time both of these characters appear um, and together is in Saga of the Swamp Thing number 44. Oh, he, God, you're right. That's right. He's part of that whole... Isn't that when he brings in all the other sorcerers too and Mento is there and they're doing like some kind of seance for the whole American oh, gothic right. thing? That's yeah. the, the shadow creature thing, right? Yeah, and that's also another step into Mento's madness because his brain kind of gets fritzed in that. <laughs> and That's uh, yeah, a little more than a gifted industrial tinkerer is able to process. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He's, he's not even Tony Stark here. This is just Steve Dayton. Yeah. So it was a, it's a high compliment that he was allowed to even sit in on that gathering. Mm-hmm. But uh, as you say, it was a little more than he could handle. Yeah, I forgot about that. I forgot that he was in that. Because then I, I found in my notes where Constantine does show up in in – uh, New Teen Titans, it's, it's in Baxter issue number 22, and I cannot place what that issue is. I, I'd have to look up the cover to see why he would even be in that issue, but it's kind of weird that of the only the only books that John Constantine has been in is either Swamp Thing or a book written by Marv Wolfman. So it's kind of, kind of curious. Yeah, it's like Alan Moore was like, all right, I'll let you use my toy, but only you. Mm. It must have seemed like an awfully cool toy if uh, Marf Wolfman wanted to use it that early in its existence. Yeah. Let me look that up uh, just to double check. Are you going to see how many other appearances he had made? Yeah. I'm going to go to comicbookdb.com, oh, which is great yes. because you can go and you can hit on a character and then they you can go show this character in chronological order of, of release of their book. So it's like, ah, I love that format. Yeah. It's a very, very valuable tool, a go-to for us. Oh, yeah, this yeah, this was funny little scene here. Just a couple of uh, world-weary wielders of influence just uh, sitting around and reacting in their respective ways to the apparent upcoming end of the world. Shall we 
move on to the Knicks because that's all I really had. Yep, that's all I had too. And then we're going to go, let's see, one, two, three, three and two quarters or two thirds pages. Again, these these few pages are laid out strangely. I mean, the way that scene straddles two pages. And then in the uh, lower half of this page, we finally get down to the – the uh, the main action of the issue when we get back to the uh, cosmic destruction. We, we jump straight from Constantine with a cigarette in his mouth musing about Swamp Thing to antimatter killing another version of Earth. And below that is the, uh, uh, the understated uh, title of this issue, And Thus Shall the World Die! And so uh, the captions tell us uh, which Earth it is that's being eaten by antimatter. Now, antimatter sweeps over the world known as Earth-1, even as it is finishing its destructive path across Earth-6. After that, only four others remain for those who are keeping score. Somewhere, he... he, And it's uh, it's stressed he, talking about the anti-monitor, of course, laughs a deep and heady laugh. Then the title, and then back to another little... Uh, longer-than-high panel, a little flattened panel of of an Earth being consumed by antimatter. Pariah stands around him knowing full well that he he will see even... knowing full well what he will see even before it shimmers into view. A moment before he was elsewhere, now he stands on the threshold of a world about to die. And the bottom panel is Pariah screaming and uh, bemoaning his fate as he witnesses... What the rest of us witness when we turn the page to page five. And it's another great uh, Perez uh, chaotic mob scene, you know, similar to the death of the nameless Earth at the beginning of uh, issue one. Mm-hmm. Just a big crowd of people running away from the White Wall as it sweeps across a major metropolitan area. Um, and uh, Pariah muses to himself about what he and uh, the reader are seeing. Such a strange world this one is. Unlike most other Earths, a cosmic anomaly, no duplicates here, already an impossibility, as all universes were formed at the same time at the dawn of creation. And sure enough, it's, it looks nothing like any Earth we've seen. I mean, this, it may be by design, too. That's a couple of thoughts about that. But um, it, it looks more like an alien planet than like an, an Earth. It looks more like Krypton, almost. It's just got the very clearly alien... No, not belonging to any human culture or technology, uh, just futuristic-looking architecture, vehicles, the fashions the people are wearing are not of this earth. Uh, just uh, people. I, I noticed several little people. I was going to say the, the shapes and sizes of the people are also very different. Hmm. Some hidden commentary going on there too. But yeah, they're just and uh, Pariah tells us point blank, no duplicates here. This Earth Six doesn't appear to have its own little version of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, etc. But still, Pariah continues, they have heroes too. A dozen, maybe more, but only three survive. Which leads me to wonder what did the other nine heroes of Earth Six look like? Yeah, yeah. Point? Were they all members of the same royal family or we'll never know. Did they look like the Flash or Blue Beetle, or <laughs> I guess we'll never know. But so it's, and so we're kind of a puzzle here of all the Earths that Wolfman's throwing at us here. And I always think back to Earth Six, mm-hmm. you know, thinking of, and also, well, Earths X, S, and Four, you know, modern day multiverse or attempts at creating multiverses. And we've had a couple of them in the past few years. The, you know, like the, the New Fifty Two multiverse after Infinite Crisis, and the multiverse we've got in the 
post-Flashpoint era now, they all dwell a little too much on just giving us endless doppelgangers of established DC characters, and not enough of them have completely original character sets on them. And I think back to Earth-6 and why it had no duplicates whatsoever and how refreshing that was. Mm -hmm. And it it does sort of lead one to wonder why this Earth that uh, Wolfman whipped up at the last minute, why it is so different from all the others. Yeah. Well, let's um, let's pause here for a little second and okay. talk about a little bit more about. It. So we'll we'll break format a little bit. We'll because this is a meaty sequence that um, we don't want to. Uh, you know, maybe there might be a lot to say right away as opposed to just you know. Um, so think of the to go along with your thought. Think of the multiversity handbook, where all the new by Grant Morrison and all, all the new Earths um, were all riffs on Justice League. Superman or Batman, right? Um, even when, even when they were based on certain Elseworlds stories, um, but it was only based on like maybe like a Batman Elseworlds or a Superman Elseworlds, they still designed the full Justice League to kind of evoke that Elseworlds concept, mm-hmm. even if those characters never existed anywhere before in the original stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it and it kind of made me think of that. It kind of made me think of that. It made me think of Mister Mind and and all of the multiverse. All the Earth. oh right, uh, Mister Mind, the Hyperfly. How yeah, he, the the the, the post Infinite Crisis multiverse was just him sucking time and space matter out of different universes. Right, and they were all. Based on the same Earth, but then every time he flapped his wing, you know, it turned into, oh, there's there's the new Earth X and there's the new whatever. And even those Earths didn't really last. Those those Earths, um, multiple Earths became something else eventually anyway. I think they were uh, – in the multiversity, I think we were told that they were destroyed and we're yeah. on Multiverse 3 by now. Yeah. <laughs> ah, so your point is right. You know, why – it makes me think a couple of things, like like you said, why this Earth? What about this Earth makes it so different? You know, they're talking about the royal family, like in that next panel. Look, the king is here. Um, what was Marvel was Wolfman's a smart writer, so you know, it's I can't imagine it's just a throwaway. Like, was he like, did he say to himself, "I'm just tired of seeing, excuse me, the Superman Batman uh, analogs. I just want to do something different." Number one, because I need to introduce this character that's going to be very important later. Um, or, you know, wh- where is it coming from? Is this – was it – I'm trying to think if it was you that said maybe this Earth feels like um, the American Revolution never happened. I feel like I read that someplace. Oh, okay. It might explain the, uh, well, the, the monarchy that this uh, Earth appears to have, like the British Empire had just continued to spread perhaps. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I might be reading too much in the artwork, but there's not a lot of brown faces in this in the the scene where people are running. Uh, there is that one guy who kind of looks Indian, right? But that sort of speaks to the whole British Empire thing, you know. Like, so I I don't know. I mean, I'm, again, I might be reading a little too much in that part of it, but um, yeah, it's it's a curious thing. This Earth and and <laughs> like Harbinger's origin and a couple other things, we're never going to know. I mean, you're just we're never told in story. I don't think Lady Quark's later appearances in after the crisis were ever really fleshed out. So not much. Yeah. But you know, one thought I had about uh, why the Earth is so different: maybe mm-hmm. Wolfman intended all along for Lady Quark to have a life in the revised 
unified DC universe. And an Earth that's this different from all the others might have been easier to uh, retcon in the post-crisis history as an alien planet as opposed to a parallel Earth. Oh, I like that. Yeah. In fact, I think that is what – I mean she, she became a member of Legion eventually, you know, the acronymic Legion. And I think maybe the name of her planet was actually Quark. Um, we find out her name is Tashana later. That comes to yeah. us via who's who. Uh, is that where it comes? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I and, thought, and it's uh, we're we're jumping a little bit ahead on the pages here, but uh, I thought it was interesting that you get Lord Volt's name or Volt Lord Volt. Lord, get, yeah, Volt yeah. Lord is what uh, the character in that uh, weird DC Comics right. presents issue right. was. Yeah, like an, a post-crisis character that she thought might be the post-crisis incarnation of her husband. Right. So, like, we get his name and we get the daughter's name, but we never get her name in this. So Wolfman is you – know, I thought that was sort of interesting too. It yeah. feels like her name is just Quark, like you said. You yeah. know? And then in the – well, that same who's who entry tells us uh, their, their, their daughter's title. I mean if uh, Lord Volt – yeah, Lord Volt's title is Lord Volt and his real name is Karak. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lady Quark's title is Lady Quark, but her real name is Tashana. Uh, their daughter's name is Liana, but her title is Princess Fern. And that, we, that, that only appears in that Who's Who entry. So that, that Who's Who series does actually give us some information that never comes out in the comics themselves. Yeah, well, they said it was a companion piece, mm-hmm. so there you go. Because yeah. I actually – in my notes, I was like, where did we learn Princess Fern's name from? And now you just answered mm-hmm. that. So. Well, Wolfman was contributing writer and editor to that whole series yeah. since it was meant to be, as you say, a companion piece to Crisis. It's only fitting that the architect of Crisis have a strong hand on that wheel. Yeah. How does Pariah know that this universe had – Twelve, a dozen heroes. How does he know this information? That's an excellent question. He just seems to have a, a kind of cosmic awareness, if only to heighten his suffering, just to know. I mean, he can't see. It's kind of like Santa Claus. You know, he he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He's got a form of omnipresence and omniscience that allows him to know about all the good and naughty little boys and girls out there. But Pariah, he. Just as Santa Claus can't literally be present for all the uh, good and naughty behavior, but he somehow still knows, Pariah can't literally be present to witness the deaths of the entire population of billions of each Earth he sees. So he shows up at a token location, but at the same time he's kind of cognizant of all the other little deaths surrounding him. I think it's, it's all just to make his punishment more complete. He's given this little additional – he's fed this additional information. I like that. I also like that in relation to what we find out about him later about how the monitor uses him and and that could very well be why the monitor also knows just as much as he knows yeah. as maybe he's finding getting this he's like almost like a cosmic rod almost of information. Yeah, of, that's that's exactly what monitor does. He yeah. gathers information and uses it. So it's yeah. natural that he would incorporate something like that, a feature like that into this curse yeah. an instrumental curse a curse that's meant to serve a benevolent function in the end but right. a curse all the same he would incorporate that into what he's inflicted on pariah so that he can pariah can learn as much as he can right but both as a, a future player in events and just to help his moral development as a person hmm. i dig that i dig that can i go back to the first page you can not go since... back as far as you want peter not the first page the uh, i mean the um the first part where we see pariah this oh, whole page there right Page number four. Is this the first time in the series that we're seeing the cloud eat up more than one Earth at a time? We've kind of always been shown sequentially. You know, Earth 3 gets – the nameless Earth gets eaten and then it goes away. Then Earth 3, 
gets eaten, and then it goes away. Um, and then we get the attack on Earth-1, but obviously for story reasons, we need to play that right. out for Earth a long one time. Earth-1 special, so it's anti-monitor has to take his time with it. Right, but here, Earth-6, it's like a dual attack. Um, it, I, I kind of always got the sense that it happened like a domino effect, but it feels like this, I think, is the first time we're seeing it happen on multiple fronts, and we're going to see it even more in the next couple issues. So almost as if he's speeding up the attack here at the end now that there's only really only a handful left. There's about four or five left at this point. So uh, I thought that was just an interesting thing to kind of maybe either point out or yeah. talk about or whatever. Well, by the end of this issue, Earth 2 is going to be eaten away at as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because the Earth 1 and Earth 2 are inextricably linked, as we'll be told, several pages on from here. Right. I mean, I mean, if, if his whole the, – the, the villain's goal, the anti-monitor's goal is to wipe out all the positives to, to reinforce the negative. Don't mess with <laughs> Mr. In-Between. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's got to be super powerful. So, yeah, why not? Eh. It's like these donuts sitting here, you know. You're just going to eat one at a time or you just eat them all together. <laughs> Power hungry, man. I like the donut metaphor. And does it I guess it says, right? There's only 4 Does it say that there's only 4 left? It does. Yeah, yeah I think it's right. Uh, do, 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 where, where did it say that? After that only 4 others remain. So I guess it's 2SX and 4. Right. So they're not really even – they're not even counting one. Technically, there's five. Yeah. Yeah. Just since six is still in the mix right now. And where's Earth D at this point? <laughs> where's Earth Prime at this point? That's true. That's true. Yeah. Earth D, folks, if you're listening at home, you, you need to pick up the uh, Legends of the DC Universe Crisis one-shot from the late 90s, which was a uh, Wolf, Wolfman written, and it's meant to be kind of like a crisis chapter – Four and a half, I think. Four point five, yeah, yeah. And a couple of things on these pages, uh, a little bit of bits of dialogue. A moment before he was elsewhere, and I was like, "Ooh, elsewhere's, elsewhere's, like a elsewhere, like the DC alternate uh, b- that that brand of alternate stories." Elseworlds, elseworlds, yeah. I kind of was like, "Oh, that's kind of cool." Uh, and then he says, why must I witness such horror? And that's information that we'll finally get to see. So all of his babbling and his whining will actually come to a point yeah, there's soon actu- enough. There's actually an answer to this self-pitying question he yeah. keeps asking. All right. I guess. Do you have anything else or can we jump back into the oh, – Let's get back to Earth-6. Got it. All right. So as uh, you said a minute ago, Peter, the crowd looks up in the sky and says, look, the king is here. Thank creation, Lord Volt will save us. So on Earth-6, the superheroes are not only champions and defenders, they are regents as well. There's a royal family in place. Lord Volt and Lady Quark show up side by side. And the first thing that Lord Volt does is to imperiously confront Pariah. And uh, since he's the only anomaly present, he says his analyzers discovered Pariah's presence here on Earth. And um, he he immediately points the accusing finger at the uh, stranger in their midst. And uh, he attempts to – so, again, if more curious little wrinkles of Pariah's powers, yeah, his curse, yeah. show up every issue, it seems. Psycho Pirate made him laugh a few issues ago and bad shit happened. And now Lord Volt attempts to uh, use his electric powers on Pariah to basically torture him into revealing what he knows about what's happening to Earth-6. And all that happens is feedback 
from uh, Lord Volt's own powers zap him back, and he's thrown back. He screams, and then Lady Quark from off-panel takes a hand and fires one of her blasts, and her powers are nuclear in nature, so she generates nuclear energy. She's a really very powerful individual, and that uh, most 80s of all energy sources, nuclear power is what, <laughs> what runs her. She wants to know what Pariah's done to her husband, and uh, he is not hurt. He's only stunned. And uh, Lord Volt, from his position on the ground, says to Pariah, Alien, my powers and the powers of my family have protected Earth since our reign began. Which, again, makes you wonder, did they assume control of Earth just recently, or is this a whole dynasty going back generations? Right. Not. It's not even just a country or a kingdom. It's the entire Earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lady Quark whispers into his ear, he comes to kill us. He uh, and she says she's going to generate a wall of destructive energy around us, which is really not that well depicted by Perez in the next couple of panels. We just kind of see this big smoky haze come up, and uh, Quark is gloating that quote even that alien cannot by the creator. As Pariah just moseys on through and says, "I cannot die, Lady Quark. That is my power and my curse." Tries to reassure them that he's here to help. That does not convince Princess Fern, Liana, who just as a side note, Liana, as a side note, is a kind of tropical creeper vine. That's not just a nonsense word that uh, Wolfman made up. See, you learn so much from this podcast. (laughs) Your word for the day. Right, Liana. It's uh, an epiphytic tropical vine. There you go. Uh, And uh, so she comes in and she accuses Pariah of being a liar. And with all the impetuousness of youth, she uses her power to, quote, control nature, which really amounts to controlling plant life. She causes these monstrous vines to come up out of the ground and envelop Pariah. But then the antimatter seeps through and uh, gets to her before it gets to the rest of her family. Paralyzes her apparently, and so she perishes in the antimatter while her parents look on in horror. And a very powerful panel at the bottom of page six, where Lord Volt, helpless for all his power to do anything else, does what any parent would just screams, We love you, Liana. We love you. Yeah. Let's look at these two pages here before we jump to the last page. Uh, there's a couple things to talk about. Um, what about that? It's like every issue, Pariah gets a noop. It's like Dial P for Pariah gets a new power <laughs> every issue. Yes, we'll, we'll come back to that a little later on this issue. Actually, okay. Because Dial H does have a lot to do with Marv Wolfman. Okay. But, yeah, anyway, Dial, you know, so Pariah getting new uh, Yeah, new like aspects. just, you know, the whole thing of you can't touch him. All right. You can't, he can walk through nuclear walls. He can't die. Uh, that seems obvious because, I mean, he's he's constantly getting pulled to different places of destruction. He's not ever hurt by the destruction. Uh, you have to imagine if he did encounter the White Wall, which he does, he just – it doesn't matter. He just disappears. You know, that's his curse. Um, it, it, it's a very passive way to show his powers. He's never, he's never really shown as uh, using his powers on, on the offense. You know, there's no bolts that seem to fire from his hands or his eyes or things like that. No, yeah. no, he's just passive observer. Yeah. So his power set is basically anything that's necessary to prevent his observation of events, of these horrible universal deaths occurring over and over again. His powers are anything necessary to prevent anything else from stopping this endless cycle of torturous observation. Right, right. It's, it's, they almost kind of evolve in response to what's going on around him, and, uh, you know, and making him laugh, for example, is a uh, is a disturbance of that uh, this unnatural order that uh, the monitor we learn uh, 
instilled in him. Right. He has to watch. He has to scream. He has to mourn. He has to feel this endless horror of of infinite deaths yeah. in order for him to you know pay his penance for having, as we ultimately learn, set all of this in motion. It's almost like a twisted version of X Men's Darwin. You know, who could who could shift his powers to to any sort of situation oh, that he needed ev- for. Evolve and adapt to any. Uh, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it also kind of speaks to the whole like Galactus thing of like, you know, you can't disrupt Galactus's nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it kind of, it's just like, just how powerful is Pariah? And like, that's the thing we never really will know outside of what we're seeing because he doesn't use, utilize that power. He's not given a chance to, I should say, to utilize his power in outside of leading all the heroes through the antimatter universe later. I mean, it's not like he actually does anything, you know? Um, yeah, his powers are all kind of passive defensive. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of cool. It's and reactive. Cool. Yeah. But yeah, and he can survive. I mean, he's antimatter proof, and yet eventually during Infinite Crisis, uh, he's just killed by a special gun. Oh, I don't even remember that. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I think it was in Villains United. It was something that Gail Simone wrote. Okay. Yeah, and it was when Alex Luthor was disguised as Lex Luthor oh. of post-crisis reality. Okay. Only identifiable by the different eye color. Right. And he had captured Pariah and was kind of torturing him. And when he decided he served his usefulness and was too dangerous a figure to be allowed to live, he just takes out this special little handgun and shoots him in the head. Yeah, that seems that seems weird. I was tempted. You know, that one time we went to the New York con and I was dressed as Pariah. Yeah. To go up to Gail Simone, who was signing there at that con, and uh-huh. ask her, if it's not too much trouble, Ms. Simone, and not to question your work, but why did you kill me? <laughs> <laughs> but I like those last pa- couple panels up on page six, where, he's, where he is walking through the nuclear wall. Like, there's one shot of him where he's not the typical wide-eyed, in fear, in mourning. He's He's kind of just... Uh, almost, almost like an automaton. Like he's just walking through, and like, look, this is who I am, and it can't be any other way. Look of and, severity on his face. There. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, you know, the few times that we get other emotions from him, they always seem to stand out. Yeah, it's um, just usually fear, horror, grief. But you're right; that is a moment's thoughtfulness. The obvious thing: this is the first appearance of Lady Quark. She will be one of the big crisis new characters that is of importance. And I think I mentioned this on one of our other episodes earlier, but uh, when I was trying to cobble together a sort of overlying schema of uh, interpretive scheme for, for this crisis series, you know, uh, you know, assigning symbolic value to all the different characters, how they function in the narrative, right. what Wolf- Wolfman's idea was for including them, I pretty much just took a knee on Lady Quark. My thesis, I don't think I mentioned her at all because I, I, I was stumped. I could not figure out what Lady Quark was meant to mean to this narrative, what she symbolized. In hindsight, finally, I came up with an inkling, like just uh, within the past day or two of rereading this issue. Mm -hmm. The best I could think of for why Wolfman would bother to throw Lady Quark in here, in the absence of any knowledge of mine, of firsthand knowledge of what Wolfman actually was planning, my best theory is that he he wanted a character who had lost everything. I mean, most of the other characters from... Parallel Earths either live or die with the rest of their universe. But uh, he, I think he wanted a character who was the sole survivor of his or her respective universe, you know, just to explore the, the burden of grief and pain that such a character would carry. And making that character 
royalty, you know, from a, the ultimate life of privilege. Uh, I, I'm kind of envisioning that uh, he had in mind something similar to what uh, Superboy Prime ultimately became in the hands of Jeff Johns. Perhaps she meant to represent the grief and also the sense of entitlement of longtime comics fans at having this big, wonderful toy, the DC multiverse, ripped away from them. Perhaps she's meant to embody some of the uh, feelings of resentment and anguish that longtime fans might have felt because she kind of embodies wrath and retribution at uh, the crimes committed by the Anti-Monitor better than almost any other character in the story. A lot of them react with you know, shock and horror and anger, but uh, n- none with more anger, I think, than Lady Quark ultimately does. Hmm. So that, that's the best I can think of as to the function of Lady Quark. I'm, I may have other ideas, and our listeners may have other ideas. You may have other ideas as we go along here. Right, yeah. I, I, I remember you bringing that up in a previous episode too, and, and uh, uh, I was sort of just going to wait it out to sort of feel what the rest of the issues – I mean other than – you know, we, we speculate a lot about how much of this story survives issue to issue, and by the time they get to issue 12, uh, how much of Marv Wolfman's overall plan changed because of whatever. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. A lot has changed for a lot of different reasons, I think, will be the answer to that. Yeah. I mean, but in this issue, we get Lady Quark, and eventually we're going to get another character, and he's putting them in place for a very specific reason – as a way to confront the big bad. So is she just a story device in that regard? You know, that that's the most simplest. I'm sure you've thought of that too. You is know. it just for her power set that she's right. her in? That's what I'm thinking. You know, think of the other character that's going to come out. You know, she's mm. basically created for her power set. Power set. Yes. Yeah. I can see that more with the character you're talking about. But Lady Quark just seems to me like there's – there's more to her than that. Yeah. Wolfman, I don't think, ever really used her to the the extent that I think her setup suggests he would. Yeah. And I mean, because it's, it's, it's a... It's a scratch my head about her in the end. Yeah. It's a similar setup to Alexander Luthor, but he's a baby, so he doesn't carry any of that emotionality. True. But true. again, it's also another device. Like, Alexander Luthor is a device for him to stel- tell this larger monitor plan, which whatever that plan is, and that plan always seems to change issue to issue when he gets new beings or whatever. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think some of it is the fun- her function in the story, um, um, and, it's, and it's curious that he doesn't write her after the, the event wraps up. He, I mean, he doesn't write any of these characters he, outside of history of the DC Universe. He just lets them loose and is like, there you go. Just do what you want with them. I'm done. <laughs> so I'm glad somebody at least decided to pick up the ball yeah. with it for a little direct, little distance. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm gonna have. We're gonna just have to let that hang and put a pin in it, and we'll come back to it whenever we yeah, think of it. <laughs> as I said earlier, the fact that he made Earth Six as different from all the other Earths as he did suggests he might have wanted to fold this parallel Earth into the post-crisis reality as an alien world. Yeah, uh, but yeah. That he obviously never actually did any of that. Other writers kind of did. But, right, uh, right. But that, again, it, it still kind of boggles my mind why he set up this whole special Earth and this special character who gets special treatment from Pariah, as we'll see on the next page, yeah. and then does so little with her. All right. Should we go to the next page? Yep. Page seven after – Lord Volt, you know, I get, oh, oh, yeah, one more thing before we move on. I'm talking of uh, Pariah. 
when uh, Lord Volt confronts him right in the middle of page five, Pariah says, I am Pariah, not the one you seek. I have nothing to do with any of this. And Lord Volt says, you lie. And the heck of it is, you know, unwittingly, uh, Lord Volt is right. Pariah, although he doesn't know it, he is not telling the truth when he says he has nothing to do with any of this. So it's because he is uh, the kind of the inadvertent ultimate original cause mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of, of, of what is afflicting the multiverse right now. Anyway, skipping back over to uh, you know, just uh, that, that great little panel at the end of page six, where, which captures the, the, the helpless horror of a father watching his daughter die very well. And then you know, the, the mighty monarch, Lord Volt, just gives in inarticulate rage. He just screams, no, and just empties out his electrical powers futilely into the antimatter. And it's... It, He's not even – he's barely aware of his own death as the antimatter claims him. He's still feeling his daughters. And so it ends, reads the caption, for almost all. And then we get these uh, spooky few panels here as uh, Lady Quark is prepared to uh, you know, just to share in her, the rest of her family's death. And then coming up behind her, well, it's just ghost-like, you know, it's – Significant how uh, Perez doesn't draw Pariah's facial features here. He's cons- you, you can see only his uh, sad little eyes peeking out from underneath his hood as he uh, looms up behind Lady Quark and tells her, Lady Quark, I'm being drawn away, but I can save you. So again, talking about how Pariah's power set and the rules that appear to govern this curse of his change from issue to issue, all the – Millions, billions, trillions of deaths he's witnessed on Earth and presumably other worlds too throughout the multiverse. And he's never – he's trying – like he reaches out and tries to save that little boy on the nameless Earth at the beginning of, of issue one. But that little boy wasn't important enough apparently. So now suddenly for reasons unclear, he is able to rescue this one person because Marv Wolfman at the time he wrote this issue seemed to think she was going to be very important not that she isn't important later but i just don't think she ever becomes quite as important as wolfman thought at this stage in the writing of this event so pariah is able to bend his rules in a big way and against lady quark's will i might add he is able to envelop her in his creepy green cloak and i mean this is I mean, again, I'm stressing the fact that Pariah's face is hidden during this. He's he's kind of like the, uh, the the he's like an, the angel of life, you know. Yeah. He's yeah. like the Grim Reaper sneaking up behind people who don't want to die, but for Lady Quark, who just wants to die to be with her family, he's no less an unwelcome presence. This you now this uh, macabre figure that's condemning her to life without her people, her world, her family, her very universe. Forcing her into uh, an existence of life as a continuity remnant. So it, he, it, it does. It's like, why didn't you ever do this before? <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a real head shaker. Yeah, yeah. And then we get this uh, neat, very Perezian little sequence of uh, square panels. As we see uh, the same sequence of uh, Pariah grabbing Lady Quark, beginning to vanish, finishing vanishing, and then white. It's kind of the same four images, the same sequential four moments in time, just seen from uh, different uh, distances. So close-up, medium close-up, and then long shot of the entire Earth, and then an even longer shot of the entire Earth just gradually disappearing. Pry and Lady Clark 
poofing off to parts unknown, and then Earth-6 dying its final death. It's just an interesting little 16-square layout there at the bottom of that page. And who is watching? Are we to assume that it's Monitor watching this? Well, giving the segue to the next page, yeah. So yeah. The, the little squares, especially as you notice they get uh, more and more rounded the, at the corners as we go down. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I think DM Hate pointed out in his post that uh, some reviewers at the time actually criticized it's an odd thing to pick up on for a critic at that time, the, the rounded corners of the panels, but they serve a definite narrative purpose here. Right. They're to inform us that we're going from uh, seeing this as readers to seeing this through the eyes of the monitor on his video screens in his satellite. And I'll just make note that um, Pariah saving Quark is something that will come up later within her character. So uh, Within this series? Or within later? this series, yeah, the, the way she treats him. And, mm. you know, that's definitely right. going to be a, a, a point. Yes. You know? <laughs> her savior and also her condemner. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you, I'm, I'm jumping ahead years later, actually. Lady Quark showed up uh, for a little bit in the... Uh, in the Roger Stern written Starman series of the very late 80s and early 90s. This oh. is the Will Payton Starman, where Lady Quark kind of plays Maxima and uh, decides she's going to take uh, Will Payton as her consort <laughs> against his will. It's funny because later on we learn that Will Payton was cosmic royalty all along. He was a reincarnation of Prince Gavin of the Empire. Oh, right. But, uh, so Lady Quark shows up there, and Pariah is kind of tagging along behind. He's stalking her. We, we learned – this is Roger Stern's idea, I'm pretty sure. The pariah has kind of a weird fixation on Lady Quark. <laughs> He's following her around, and Quark just has to tell him, just leave me the hell alone. I have that – I'm slowly collecting that run, so I think I'm shy maybe 10 issues or so. So I've mm -hmm. not delved into it, but that I didn't realize they were in that. So Yeah, it's not for long, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's yeah. just before she ends up in the Legion series. And uh, when you factor that into it, uh, just that, that sort of creepy – bug-eyed expression that uh, Pariah's eyes have underneath his hood take on a, a, another meaning. I mean, not only is he like the angel of life, as I said, coming to steal her away and force her to go on living without her family, he also, you know, you might see him as being kind of <sighs> desirous of her hmm. and uh, not knowing after all his years of suffering what to do with those feelings other than to just grab her in her cloak and force her to go on living Yeah, so that he can... No, drool over her, I guess. <laughs> and so, is there any parallel between him saving her and when he learns that what Monitor did to him? Oh, condemning her. Well, of course he doesn't. Hmm. I'm sort of, I'm sort of just thinking, you know. I, and again, this is hindsight because we haven't gotten to that point yet. But had he learned that information first, that the Monitor basically set him on this course, saving him. From a universe. I don't think he'd be able to see the parallel, no, actually. Yeah. He's just concerned with – as he says in the bottom of this page, but I cannot – I'm sorry. I truly am, but I cannot let you die. If I can save but one life, my eternal damnation will be eased that much more. So he's thinking more about what it means as far as atoning for his own past right, sins right. more than what that atonement means for the person he's saving. Uh, yeah, and, and if, again, we've – if I can save but one life. And again, we have to ask the question, can he save but one life? And if so, why this one? Why now? After all the other lives he maybe could have saved. This cape seats one. <laughs> Just waiting to play his wild card until he 
found a chick he liked enough, I guess. I guess. He likes the short <laughs> yeah. white hair, I guess. And again, I'm sure that's not exactly what Wolfman had in mind at this point, but that's what Roger Stern chose to go back and read into it, and I can kind of see his point just looking – rereading this page and seeing what's going on on it with that in mind. Right, right. Yeah, well, that brings us to the end of Earth 6. Mm-hmm. We hardly knew ye. And the end of page 7. And then, well, it's at this point that we know for certain that uh, we have been the victim of kind of a cliffhanger cheat from the previous issue. Because if you think back to the end of issue 3, we have Harbinger showing up fully intent on killing the Monitor. And now here we are about a third of the way through issue 4 and... Uh, that uh, little happening seems to have been retconned away already. Well, don't forget, she was watching a monitor, right? She was watching a monitor of him. Um, but uh, She was definitely, you know, you sort of get the suggestion that she's on the attack. But uh, Well, yeah, she, well, the monitor, she speaks and the monitor looks up. It's like, hmm? she says, wrong, old fool. It is time for you to die. And there, Yeah, there remember, we, we talked about that. See how the panels around him are rounded? Oh, my now, goodness. I think yeah. we even brought that up the last time that it, it really feels like – and that may be the other thing that people were criti- – you talk critics were criticizing. Oh, or not so much that he's using the curved uh, cornered panels but that he's uh, using them mis- misleadingly. Yeah, or, be, or they just didn't it's, – it's, it's tricky. It's hard to pick up. Like when you look at it, you're like, yeah, it does feel like he's reacting to her, but yeah. – really does it, it fooled me yeah but i mean even in a few pages before that people are watching people are you know so um uh it's a it is a cliffhanger it is a feint because you feel like she's on the attack but really she's just being all blustery by herself <laughs> by herself in her own little rooms like i'm gonna get you in a couple minutes you know so um yeah yeah so it is it's a cliffhanger for cliffhanger's sake not necessarily for story sequential sake, I guess you could say, if that makes sense. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. How so, you feeling? You still want to keep narrating or you you talked out? No, no, no. Oh, good grief. We've got a lot of ground left to cover here. Oh, no, no. I meant I, – no, we'll keep going. I just meant you personally. Do you, I mean are you – I like I like your, you know, your little synopsy of oh, all this stuff. So well, I haven't had much of a chance to synopsize on uh, Comic Geek Speak proper lately. So, so then synopsize away. Happy to, my friend. <laughs> happy to. All right, so cut to the monitor's satellite, but it's, it's just kind of a brief transitional scene, though, as it takes us – it bounces us to the introduction of that other new character you were talking about, Peter. Uh, so the monitor is on his satellite world. He's clearly aware of the demise of Earth-6, and he continues to talk to himself about how his enemy is growing in strength with the destruction of each paral- uh, positive matter universe – uh, his rival adds more power to his own and draws more power out of the monitor himself, and soon none will be powerful enough to stop him once he destroys Earth-1. So it's it's strongly implicit in, for the reasons we've been talking about. It's taking the longest to digest, but Earth-1 is the most important Earth, and once – it's like the kingpin of the remaining multiverses, and once the anti-monitor knocks that down, nothing will be able to stop him. But there is still one chance, says the monitor, my new warrior. And he presses one of the infinite number of buttons on the console in front of him. 
quote, an ion-based energy ray rips across a turbulent cosmos, you know, where the constellations aren't aligning properly, etc. Its destination, the Vagan star system, which was pretty prime real estate in the mid-80s, as we know. Marv Wolfman creation. Right, right, right. Since it's, it's uh, Starfire is from there. The Omega Men are having their monthly adventures there. And an unstable star already in the throes of self-destruction. This probably plays into something that was happening in the Omega Men at that time. And an energy beam is seen Im- emerging, uh, coruscating in the direction of Earth-1. And then the scene cuts to Japan, Earth-1, an observatory where there are a bunch of Japanese scientists observing what's happening throughout uh, the chaotic universe of Earth-1. They see, they, they're aware of antimatter. They, they, they even know what to call it. The antimatter comes too quickly, one of them marks. There is no way to avoid it. And they're telling each other how frightened they are, perfectly understandable, except to possibly the most unpleasant uh, Japanese astronomer ever to appear in comic books as she approaches and uh, sharply rebukes uh, the other astronomers working under her for their childlike weakness of uh, fearing their deaths in the the face of the death of the entire universe. She's not a very understanding figure. And this is Dr. Kimio Hoshi uh, making her first appearance. Uh, she is diminutive in stature. She's only five foot something, according to who's who. And she does kind of look at the way Perez draws her here. And uh, she's just berating uh, the scientists, who, all of whom are apparently working under her, and even her own father, as we see at the top of the next page. And she says, fine, you pitiful weaklings. Go to your loved ones. Leave me alone. And she goes over to her telescope and observes the approaching energy beam realizes it's heading directly towards her, and then there's a long, loud scream. Yeah! Multiple Gs. <laughs> Bottom of page nine, stuff blows up all over the observatory. Uh, as people and things fly all over the place from the impact. Those uh, astronomers left on their feet and conscious go over to the site of the blast. They discover that Dr. Hoshi has disappeared. One of those present blames the antimatter cloud. It's awfully localized antimatter effect, if true, but her father, uh, Dr. Hoshi the Elder, realizes that something else took her away, and he just expresses to the open air that uh, wherever she's gone and whatever she's become, as a father knows, I guess, that uh, she's more than just been destroyed, she's been transmogrified, he says wherever she she is, whatever she's become, he still loves her. So there's our little interlude in Japan and the uh, introduction of uh, a new character who will appear in her new altered guise uh, later in this same issue. I like the notion that Monitor gives there where uh, he talks about Earth-1, and with the death of Earth-1, he shall gain that much more power. And, you know, again, if if we already know there's only a few universes left, that the bulk of the universes that he already absorbed... Um, still maybe not match the power that he'll get from Earth-1. That whole concept, the the whole, if you destroy the prime Earth, it topples everything else, mm-hmm. you know. Like, this is the closest one to the ori- what, right. what should have been originally. Yep. Johns yeah. came right out and said that later on in Infinite Crisis and elsewhere, but uh, you know, Wolfman's just kind of uh, dancing around it here. It's strongly implied. Yeah. And then he presses the button and creates Dr. Light. Uh, He first mentioned the new Dr. Light and how he would have to create her Mm -hmm. uh, back in uh, page 22 of issue two I have here. So (laughs) nearly two full issues later, he he clearly didn't get right on that. 
And when he first brings it up, he's uh, talking uh, – Psycho Pirate has just defected to the enemy. So he's talking with uh, Lila about whom he might be able to get to replace her, him. Um, Lila suggests Raven and uh, you know, Monitor says, no, no, she's completely unrecognizable now. The only hope is the new Dr. Light I will have to create, which was kind of a shocking statement because Dr. Light – now, up to that point, as uh, reader, uh, as far as readers of the DC Universe knew, was a male villain. Yeah. So a new Dr. Light to join his team who will be female. It's... Plus, Dr. Light was under the care of Marv Wolfman as part of uh, the Teen Titans um, right. rogues gallery. Right, leader of the Fearsome Five. Yeah, so if I guess if anybody's going to muck around with a new Dr. Light, it's going to be Marv Wolfman. Do we ever actually see the original Dr. Light anywhere in Crisis? I mean, he might be somewhere in the background in the villain war, but... Uh... Uh, that, that's a good question. I don't think we do. I mean, you know, I can... Uh, sort of the... He was m- messing around with the whole Fearsome Five thing, and then he he's in a Wally West story, one-off story, in New Teen Titans right before the wedding. I want to say it's either issue 48 or f- may even be 49, of Tales of the Teen Titans, we see him there, um, and is that? I think that's right around the time of the crisis, if not before. So, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know what, why, why she's able to co-opt his character, and where is he in jail? Is it just you know why that character? Why you know of outside of just it's Marv Wolfman? Like I said, he's under the care of that. So. Right. Yeah. Well, we'll return to that question when she turns up in costume for okay. the first time. But yeah, I was just, we'll just keep our eyes peeled when we get to like issue nine, the villain war. Yeah. And see if he should, if we see Arthur Light in the background there. Yeah, I'm always wondering if he's on that cover because we know that the other members of the Fearsome Five are around. Simon right. wrested control of that group from him. And, right. You know, Baron Shimmer, Gizmo, etc. They're, they're all. I'm sure they're all in issue nine. Yeah. Um, we already made mention Vega Star System, teeming with life. Um, as you mentioned. Um, so, uh, and what I kind of like about this, even just those three little panels where uh, he's absorbing the energy, not to, uh, it's not like it's spoilers, but um, it's not terribly far off from her purpose in for the whole reason why she was created way, way, way in, in issue number 12. Um, you know, what she does in the great plan that they have to finally bring the end of the anti-monitor is not terribly far off from what monitor is doing to create her. Hmm. So I thought that was a nice little parallel. Um, whether it was intentional or not, I don't know, but uh, the, the, the pseudoscience yeah. of it is makes sense. Yeah. As we said, I mean, we discussed this at some length in one of our past episodes talking about issue two, the first time monitor mentions creating the new Dr. Light is to replace psycho pirate. And we got into the idea of light and colored wavelengths of light representing emotions as per Jeff Johns and his whole lantern core thing, blackest night, etc. Um, but yeah, we seem to swing pretty far away from that. I mean, even here, two issues later, when she's showing up, she's not doing anything having to do with emotions. Right, right, right. Um, the line here about uh, antimatter destroying vast areas in high altitudes, does that mean across the world? I mean, it can only be high altitude from one plane, right? Because if it's from all around the world, then that <laughs> means it's coming in from like... 
and the rest of the universe will probably have been destroyed if it's irising in on Earth. And... Yeah, you know, what about the moon? Where's the moon at at this point? Hmm. And what's that? Yeah, so I... Well, maybe it's just, uh, well, the Earth is constantly rotating. Maybe it's kind of like... Uh, Oh, like in a fixed point, and the and the spin of the Earth is making it shear yeah, off as like it goes. Like a rapidly rotating ball being held up against an abrasive surface and being slowly shaved, lathed away. Oh, that's interesting. You know that visual, I like. I like. That's what's so funny about this sort of crisis language. Like when you really stop to think about it, your brain just goes like, no, no, you know. But that I like that. I like that concept. We're having fun here. Yeah, tossing Marv Wolfman's thirty-year-old ideas around. Um, yeah, like you said, she's not nice, you miserable toad. Um, there's a skit that Olivia Munn, the actress Olivia Munn, she talks mm-hmm. about her mom a lot, and she calls her a tiger mom. Like the, I guess it's sort of like a, uh, you know, like a cultural thing that she talks about a, a lot about her Asian mother, and, and you know, I sort of feel like that's this oh. in a very insensitive way not on marv wolfman's part but you know what i mean like it um but i like what you said about you know this is the 80s and she has that much power even over her dad and um that she pays them you know um sort of interesting it's hmm. interesting her place yeah and the, uh, I'm, I'm kind of drawing contrasts inwardly to uh another like asian female character that appeared in dc around the same time uh tsunami and she was created by uh, uh, Roy Thomas. She was a part of the All-Star Squadron as mm-hmm. an antagonist and eventually defected to the Allies' side. I think she was in Young Allies, too. Uh, but when we first see her, she's working for the Imperial Japanese government under the Dragon King, I believe. And uh, her father is uh, – uh, he's, he's like a Japanese – what the term is Issei, I think, or Issei Nisei, whatever the term is for a, Japan, a Japanese oh, right. person who immigrated to the United States. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, she's uh, very haughty and overbearing, and she's kind of uh, dressing down her father. And uh, you know, her, his fellow immigrants are t- asking him, can't you do something to take her in hand and prevent her from persecuting us and trying to recruit us for this subversive operation she's doing? And the guy just kept saying, I cannot. So like uh, – and. A Japanese woman disobeying, shaming, and uh, chewing out her elders seems to be it's just kind of the, the, the zeitgeist stereotype for comic creators at DC at that time. Yeah, yeah. At first I thought you were going to say Katana because um, she sort of had a brusque hmm. personality, a sort of – Do we know what her relationship with her father was? No, that I don't know. But we'll see. we'll see her – pop up later um right yeah an interesting little scene hmm. i mean there's the other uh, what uh, the other untold story like little minor you know we're we're playing fun with like untold stories of the crisis um like you know what would what would hal jordan's role be during this event <laughs> yeah what were the other nine heroes of earth six yeah yeah right exactly um you know, this little bit here where she says, no wonder mother left you, mm. you know, like it's a part of it's her nature. She's just trying to give a dig or whatever. But that was the first thing I thought of when you said Tiger Mom. Yeah. Yeah. Like her her backstory. We get her personality like this and then we get, you know, we see her evolution, much like Lady Quark, like all these new characters that Wolfman's creating. He's starting them from a very dramatic position that he's going to then 
explore and right. put they them on a journey. Start in a dark place, and then the horrible events of crisis actually allow them to grow. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, as I a— I had to say the same thing about Batman, Batgirl, too. Mm-hmm. You know, she's mm-hmm. doubting herself so much, and crisis not only helps her realize her own vulnerability, but realize her greater potential as something beyond just a rooftop vigilante. Right. There's a lot of touchstones uh, characters for that kind of thing in this story, and I think that's what helps keep it from just being a publishing event and— making sure that it still tries to be a story nonetheless with characters that um, you can kind of watch and grow, like you said. Um, so this little backstory and this little appearance, I mean, she changes drastically. Not only in this event, but when we see her post-crisis, she's never, uh, she, there might be hints here and there, but I thought, I thought, I think it's just interesting that we never really learn her backstory beyond this. Yeah, yeah. And Wolfman does bend over backwards to establish just how unlikable she is here right. at the beginning. Right. So yeah, it does seem that that's the trajectory he has in mind from her from the start. Just make her as despicable as she can right from the starting gate, and so <laughs> she'll look that much better later on. And we do get a line here that says, "Physics, uh, let's see, natural physics no longer apply." So that's in essence telling me to shut up about all the science and just go with it. It's crisis science. Explaining her own fascination with what's going on and her disgust and disappointment with the other people in her crew. What a golden opportunity this is for any scientist who doesn't care about things like family and their own personal well-being. So many secrets to learn. But she doesn't really get the opportunity to learn very many of them because she sees that uh, light beam approaching. And, you know, talking as we were earlier about uh, cross-promotion and cross-referencing, I... I may be wrong, but is this the first footnote we've I, seen in Crisis uh, telling you to see some other issue currently on the stands? I had it in my notes, too. I was going to ask you the same thing, so we didn't look backwards, but I'm fairly certain it probably is. Omega Men number 26. In okay. such a minor uh, – I shouldn't say minor, but it's it feels like the oddest way to – like this is the thing that you're going <laughs> to – this yeah, is right. what you want us to look up? Yep, You're not sending us to check out Constantine and Swamp Thing? Right. Because Marvel, because Omega Man is your baby, so that's why you want, you know, yeah. could be. And I, and I, I, I haven't gone back to Omega Man twenty six, so I don't know what that connection is. Yeah. So we'll have to save that for. Tell the truth, I think that may be one of the few Crisis crossovers I have not yet read. Hmm. I know I have it. I must, but it, it, I think it's still in my immense uh, backlog of comics to be read, and I have no way of finding it until it uh, rises naturally to the surface. So. But I'll keep an eye out, out for that. And I'm going to look it up because I'm, I am i can't imagine it's even a branded – no, it's not. Oh, cover. no. It's, this is far too soon for the special Crisis crossover banner to appear. Yeah, yeah. Although those will start popping up before too much longer. Yeah, but that one, it's not – I'm not even sure I have that issue. And those those panels there are a little weird as she's looking through the telescope. Like the – she sees it, the, the beam heading towards her, but then underneath we see the beam heading – into the solar system, I guess is what we're supposed to imply there. The bat, the bottom black panels, right? Oh, so it's two different perspectives. So it's, yeah. it's what she sees approaching Earth, and it's also uh, a long view of Earth's solar system. Right. Part of me was thinking, is this what she's seeing through the telescope? But that's not what you see in a telescope. No, I think the, the bottom of the panels is maybe just a, a simulation put together by other stellar data her computers are, and instruments are gathering. Oh, that's good. I, I like yeah, that's that. That's not what she's seeing. It's just it's like a computer simulation. Yeah, I'll buy that. 
I've have actually ahead. taking the time to look down at my notes. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, one or two half decent things I I had had in mind to say about page seven that I forgot to. Okay. Um, going back to Lady Quark um, about uh, well her as as a vessel of rage and uh, the voice of the uh, of disenfranchised and entitled fandom and etc. I, I I compared her to uh, Hecuba, Queen of Troy. You know, there's a, when when I was in college, uh, my roommate. Uh, was uh, a classics major. He was, he was into the uh, Greek and ancient Greek and Roman culture, and mm. as one of his class projects, he directed a production of the the tragedy of Hecuba, Queen of Troy, and what happened to her after uh, the sack of Troy, and after her husband and many of her children were killed, and all of that. So, and, and she was kind of a just a, a vessel of rage uh, as well, and, and she was kind of she was taken captive, and she became kind of a a, a, a schemer. Uh, yeah, there's a, a tragic figure there. So that that's kind of what uh, what Lady Quark is undergoing here. She's being dragged, kicking and screaming away from the death of her family. And uh, those panels down there at the bottom of that page, the sixteen panels, I uh, I, I wrote down Warhol-esque. You know, it's it, it's uh, <laughs> compartmentalization and repetition of a certain series of ideas. So yeah, it's uh, I, and thinking you know it both compounds and strips away the meaning of what we're seeing here in these panels, and it led me to think that since Warhol was such a big fan of mass production, uh, he probably would have grooved briefly on the idea of the DC multiverse. Mm. Would have thought that multiple Superman and Batman and so forth extending into infinity would have been a pretty kicky idea, and he would have been really <laughs> into it for fifteen minutes or so, and then moved on to the next thing. Right, right. <laughs> That's great. All right, so uh, back to back to Doctor Light, I guess, or, or to Doctor Hoshi at this point. She sees the beam coming. We're told where the beam came from, the Star Vega, and also Omega Men number twenty six. And then Doctor Hoshi dies, and uh, then we're back uh, at the top of page ten to the uh, rounded cornered panels to tell us that the monitor is watching what's happening here at this point. His beam has done its work, whatever it is. Is it a teleportation beam? Is it a transformation beam? It just makes her go away. And uh, the scientists are left to wonder what has become of her. One of them says it might be the antimatter cloud, and wisely, her father says, no, something else took her away from us. Kimio, wherever you are, no matter what you have become, I still love you. And so that uh, her father's love might be the uh, – whether – Dr. Hoshi realizes it or not, the, the, a, a crucial tether to her humanity as she undergoes what she undergoes in days to come. Yeah. This whole page is like crisis inception, crisisception. It's, it's <laughs> you know, she was looking at the Vega thing. The father is looking at her. Monitor is looking at them. Harbinger is looking at monitor, looking at them, looking at you know her disappearing <laughs> alexander luthor is looking at harbinger looking at monitor looking at you know and then we're reading look the, at the house that jack built yeah and we're reading we're reading it so like we're part of it too the level yeah. the depth of this page is quite fascinating people watching people watching people watching. again it's just, just that th- it is a theme it mm-hmm. is absolutely a theme just a viewing and voyeurism, and it, it kind of reminds me of apropos of nothing that there was a, an X Force parody in What the 
the Marvel in-house humor magazine back in the 90s, and it had a, a – the, the final scene of that parody story was something like this, parodying you know, like the Liefeld-era convention of having the characters do something, and then some mysterious and not very well-developed master villain is somehow watching it all on a monitor screen and laughing <laughs> in his secret headquarters. So, And that story ended with a, like a triple pullback where the master villain is being watched by a different master villain, and that master villain is being watched by X-Force. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're being watched by yet another master villain somewhere, right? And <laughs> it just got ridiculous. And then this actually comes pretty close to that, but just like the screens within screens within screens, perspectives concentrically folding in on one another, an endless screen of uh, spectation, endless not screen, and a string of spectation. Yeah. And we, as you just said, an excellent point too. We, we as the readers, are a part of it. And uh, a little later on in this issue, uh, we were kind of given uh, indirectly a bit of comeuppance for it. But yeah, it is it's kind of uh, – it's, it, it's, it, 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 yeah, it, it's a meaty little series of panels there. Yeah, I like that. So we are watching – so we're reading Monitor. Uh, well, it's what, exactly what we talked about, and we're, we're – the Harbinger sequen- sequence kind of picks up on the end of the last issue where mm-hmm. she's still watching – and still burning with rage and still yeah. planning to, well, no, as little as she wants to, go in and destroy him. And in turn, Alexander Luthor is watching her destro- destroy the monitor that she's watching. Not the, not the real monitor. Right, not the character, the, mo- the, the screen <laughs> that she's watching, yeah. That comes later. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah um, I'm glad we touch base with Alex Luthor a little bit here as he continues to grow at an alarming rate and... Give him a chance to shed his insights on what's happening here. Still naked. I don't know why he's not dressed. You know, like, you know, he's older. Can he just you well, know, throw on a tunic? Well, if it's a positive matter tunic, it would probably just. Oh, see, I never thought of that. Yeah. He needs, he needs bespoke fashion when, when your body's half matter and half anti matter. That's right. That's right. So he's probably still in some kind of containment thing yeah. while they figure it out. Oh, interesting. Okay. Gotcha. I gotcha. Let's see. Uh, I like his line there. You and I have a destiny we must fulfill when he's talking to Harbinger. And famous last words, not only with this series, but considering what eventually happens to him with uh, Infinite Crisis. Yeah. And, you know. I like the amount of empathy he's able to display at this point. You know, he, his heart goes out to her. He senses what she's going through, which is exactly what he seems to lose the ability to do by the time of Infinite Crisis when he's become – kind of uh, a psychopathic in his lack of empathy. He's just yeah. playing with universes like tinker toys. It's all just an intellectual exercise to him, which I think we've opined before is a result of his lack of a proper upbringing and socialization. You know, his emotional development is kind of warped badly by having to grow up from infancy to adulthood in the space of a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But at this point, at least, he's, he's clearly benevolent and he understands and is able to empathize with what Harbinger is going through. Which makes it all the more tragic when you look back and see what he becomes. I kind of wish there had been some character out there who could have put that into perspective for us to show that Luthor, Alex Luthor, was not always like that. That's always been one of my biggest problems with Infinite Crisis. Great entertaining story, tons of DC Universe goodness, but it kind of threw Superboy Prime and this character under the bus. Under the bus, yeah, yeah. And that last shot of Harbinger with her black eyes because she's tainted. She's tainted by... I feel him controlling me. She's tainted by this villain. She's on her way. Right, there's a little shadow demon behind her eyeballs. And then 
then I guess we go back to the den of the uh, the, adver- the adversary, the, the enemy, who is as yet unnamed, of course, and unseen, as much in shadow as his shadow demons. On page 11, another little scene between him and Psycho Pirate, where Psycho Pirate says something and uh, the Anti-Monitor harshly silence or I'll punish you. <laughs> Poor Psycho Pirate. Excuse him for living. Um, and with another monitor image here. Yeah, anti-monitor apparently doesn't have color screens in his little headquarters in the moon of Quard. <laughs> um, but uh, that, that's one of the things they changed, actually, from the uh, issues to the uh, trade. They added some color to these images of the red tornado we're oh. seeing here. So it's not just blue and white. So Psycho Pirate is uh, gloating a little bit, uh, you know, doing his court jester shtick about uh, uh, the the Red Tornado and how he's soon going to be uh, Shanghai to their side. Anti-Monitor, as I said, tells him to shut up and cease his prattling. And then he's like, yeah, but still, I agree with you, even though I want you to shut up. And now I'm going to reach out my hand and uh, bring the Red Tornado here to our den of evil. So it's just this one uh, – there's, there's a lot of these little one-page – and, and again, it's Perez's – Peerless awareness of his uh, page composition here. These little skinny, low-ceilinged, claustrophobic panels stacked tightly on top of one another. And a lot of these scenes with the Anti-Monitor in his stronghold are like that. And uh, so the Red Tornado was brought in, and uh, he demands to know what he's doing there. The Anti-Monitor gives him little in the way of an explanation, but just tells him that he is going to be complicit in the destruction of the universe. Bing, bang, boom. So there's your uh, touching base with the villain of the piece on that yeah. page. Um, I like when he says, silence, obey my commands. Right, what, is, what does he say? Okay, so he says, silence, uh, cease your prattling and obey my commands. Has he given any commands to this point yet? I mean, you know, they're kind of just hanging out in this thing for a while. Yeah. I mean, what, he hasn't really done anything. His yet. only command is to shut up and not yeah, bother him. Right. <laughs> He does it over and over and over again every time Psycho Pirate opens his mouth. Uh, he does say soon you will – like you said, soon soon you will have a new world to psychologically reshape. And actually that will be a few new worlds. Mm, a little more than the, the pirate can handle as it turns out. Yeah, so he does He does clearly have a plan. And then uh, who says uh, – let's see. Yet I, I comprehend your excitement. Mm-hmm. Um. I always uh, this sort of made me think, for obvious reasons, he doesn't do it. But what if the psycho pirate tried his? Did he has he tried his power on the anti monitor yet? I can't remember in previous issues. I think he maybe threatened to when the anti monitor first uh, recruited him, but uh, he responded by making psycho pirate's face disappear, and that uh, kind of that put whoop, the kibosh on enough that. of a deterrent. Yeah. And uh, we get the first hero that actually comes face-to-face with the Anti-Monitor, Red Tornado, which as soon as I read that and thought of it in those terms, I was like, oh, of course. If you think about Red Tornado in 52 and you think about him, hell, even now in DC Metal, like the 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 way he his brain can perceive different you know, universes, multiverse, whatever. Like, he's always been... Careful. Remember, I haven't read past issue one of Metal. Oh. He's in issue one. He is? Yeah. I don't remember. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, he yeah, was yeah. there, and he was in Challenger's Mountain. Right. Right, right, okay. right, right, right. Um, and he's not... And not even to say that he's... There's anything that happens with him, just that he is there, and 
uh, like think of 52 where he's always going 52, 52, 52. Like mm. he's like a repository almost of mm. – of, A black box of sorts? Yeah, thank you. That's a great – I love that term. Yeah, Red Tornado is a black box. <laughs> he's a red box or whatever. I don't yeah, know. Got to give some credit to Julie Benson. She had uh, something in mind for – I mean I, I, I don't want to reveal too much about what she had planned to do. But she had kind of a pre-crisis black box concept in mind. And I, th- I think that phrasing might actually have been hers. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean you know, so when – when this came about and you think about what's going to happen to him, that he has – he might have information that the heroes never able to utilize because he is the first one to come face-to-face with the anti-monitor. I thought that was kind of really cool. I thought that was a cool thing. It's hindsight connection, but it's still fun to play oh, with. Some, those are some of the most fun connections to make. Yeah. Yeah, so he's kidnapped right in the middle of saving a bunch of kids from that very slow-moving antimatter wall on Earth-1. And then there he is. And, you know, this uh, one of the first inklings of uh, you know, what we were promised in the hype leading up to Crisis was that uh, heroes would become villains and villains would become heroes. Alliances would change. And I think we were asking ourselves a couple of episodes ago whether very much of that actually happened. And I'm positive that uh, Red Tornado was one of those that was supposed to have been realigned by this, repolarized, since he is, after all, a machine and can be reprogrammed, and plus he does have some villainy in his past makeup, created by a supervillain and possessed by a, a, a other an extraterrestrial elemental wind being uh, who had uh, been a, literally a tyrant, a tornado tyrant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's all there. If any hero was going to change sides, it would happen most organically with, with him, for example. I think the idea was ultimately to have Red Tornado become a force of uh, – well, not not evil exactly, but an antagonistic force, like something like an eco-terrorist hmm. uh, in uh, the years after Crisis. I mean the, the, there was the, the, the one Justice League of America annual featured uh, the Red Tornado kind of reduced to a primal force going on. The, literally a big Red Tornado spinning around, not, not even really conscious but just destroying everything. Right. So they wanted to use him as kind of like a you – know, Vehicle for 80s ultra-environmentalism, you know, mankind is despoiling Mother Earth and Red Tornado is going to give him what for. That uh, never – it didn't last very long though. They, yeah. they got him back into his android shell and back on the side of the angels pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean he, he doesn't – boy, does he take a journey after this book. I mean doesn't, doesn't some of what you were saying about the whole elemental thing, that plays out in Firestorm too in later issues of Firestorm. Right, right, because they, they, they took that uh, the elemental concept that Alan Moore came up with in Swamp Thing, and they gave us, in addition to the earth elemental that Swamp Thing was, air, fire, and water elementals. Firestorm right. being fire, of course, and Red Tornado being wind, and the water one they never quite nailed down. They, they tried a couple of different water yeah. elementals. I think that, Niad or Right, like the yeah. minor typhoon, was it maybe? Oh, okay. Yeah, like there's a couple of different like, – Niad is familiar too. Yeah, uh, there's people who showed up in Firestorm, as you said. Mm-hmm. And then later, Peter David's Aquaman run introduced yet another one. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Red Tornado would wind up in Primal Force, and he wasn't quite the same in that. And then Young Justice, uh, Young Justice, I think, kind of brought him back a little bit. But. Yeah, you know, closer to his humanity. He was basically yeah. just a malfunctioning automaton in Primal Force. Now, to to sort of connect back to what we were trying to do with monitor monitoring monitoring the monitor where we wanted to give a status quo where does the 80s red tornado kurt busick miniseries play in i was just going to mention that okay I, and again i can give thanks to the uh, official crisis index from icg mm-hmm. it tells us that uh, he's coming right off uh, that miniseries i mean that was his last appearance before showing up in crisis 
Got it. Got it. So that was when he was, um, again, wrestling with his synthetic humanity and uh, went up against the construct. You know, a foe who was a personification of technology gone wrong. And how Red Tornado then was forced to define himself and uh, the good he's able to do in the world versus a force right. like that. Right. And those last two panels, you know, to sort of touch again about uh, about the whole, you know, Red Tornado as a black box. He says, are you the one responsible for the madness that is on Earth? And then Anti-Monitor says, more than just your Earth android. <gasps> oh, no. So someone outside of the Great 15 finally knows that it's bigger mm. than what they might think. Yep. And it is a character whose uh, worldview uh, does uh, go beyond just one Earth. Because yeah. he's one of the few DC characters who has lived um, uh, for an extended period of time on more than one Earth. Originated on Earth 1, joined the JSA, and moved to Earth 2 for a while. So when the Anti-Monitor tells him more than just your Earth android, he, more than a lot of other characters, knows uh, right away what's going to be at stake. Yeah. Anything else about this page? I have a, one or two other things, but not much. Uh, no, I, I don't think so. Okay. No, go ahead. Uh, the only other thing is he, you know, we can add him to the list of characters that um, probably were on the creator's list of they're, they're going to come out of this changed as you mentioned you know so even in this issue alone batgirl supergirl now red tornado um we can throw in the flash kid flash you know all these characters that uh are going to be affected in major major ways by the event so um like you talked about so i think it's kind of cool to keep a running list of that too which characters because there are certainly characters who are affected by the crisis so much so that they get rebooted, you know, Superman, Wonder Woman, but their their journey through crisis is not it's it's really after the the effects of crisis is what affects them, whereas I feel like there are characters within the story that are on that short list of all right, these are characters we're going to make sure we're going to mess with right. during the story. And I'm quite sure there was literally a list. Yeah. Yeah. So I like that, you know, kind of keep track of all that. Um and then when while Psycho Pirate is, you know, being a nuisance, uh, the Anti-Monitor says, you know, one one more pirate and you will be replaced with a girl called Phobia, which is a New Teen Titans rogues, part of the New Teen Titans rogues gallery, another connection to Marv oh, Wolfman. Right. She, he, he definitely did create her as part of the Brotherhood of Evil. Yeah. Just playing up that Doom Patrol uh, New Teen Titans connection, which also includes Steve Dayton, as we saw earlier this issue. Oh, and uh, while we're talking about the Psycho Pirate here... Um, when Red Tornado pops in and says, you are the Psycho Pirate, you manipulate emotions, I, I do have in my notes that he would recognize the Psycho Pirate because, as I just said a few minutes ago, he did – the Red Tornado did live on Earth 2 for a while. There you go. And the Pirate is from Earth 2. And speaking of Earth 2, segue into the next uh, couple of pages of scenes here. Um, on pages 12, 13 – um, we've, uh, see the last of, uh, the, uh, of the summoned, of the, uh, the, the big 15 characters that, uh, the monitor scrapes together in issue number one. And, uh, it's a smaller group than most, you know, instead of dividing them into even groups of three, we can, he sends four to the old West for, you know, and there's your theory about them being analogs for the fantastic four. Hmm. And, but that leaves, uh, kind of a shorthanded, uh, skeleton crew here of the, uh, unwilling young lovers. Firestorm and Killer Frost, as they are sent back in time to uh, medieval England, to the days of uh, mythical Camelot, which on Earth 2 are something more than mythical, of course. And uh, so, and, and uh, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the first one of the monitor's uh, tuning fork towers that is explicitly positioned on Earth 2. Right, right. Because as as we sort of um, argued against in one of the previous uh, issues, there are some annotations that consider the World War II scenes to be on Earth 2. Uh, we talked about like that scene in Markovia um, just because Sergeant Rock at one point calls them all, all stars. Star yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't buy it. You know, we, we, we argued the point, you know, before. So yeah, I, I really don't buy it either. Yeah. I always thought uh, Earth 2 basically gets uh, golden age heroes and any historical figures that are explicitly put there. But all the other like Old West and war type heroes, it's, the rest of it's pretty much all Earth 1. Right, right. So, yes, you are, you are correct. Yeah, this is the first Earth 2 placement. And so Killer Frost and Firestorm show up and uh, position themselves to defend it. Uh, Vandal Savage happens to be alive and in Camelot at this time, observes them. And also noticing them is the Shining Knight aboard his winged steed, Winged Victory, who at first mistakes them for wizards, since that's what superheroes must do upon uh, meeting each other for the first time, always. Misunderstand uh, each other's nature and nearly come to blows. And uh, then the Shadow Demons show up, and uh, Killer Frost and Firestorm have to ward them off. Uh, Shining Knight lends a hand, but then, just as uh, they seem to be getting the upper hand in the battle, the Shadow Demons start to do, they begin their end game. They start to do something that they haven't been observed to do yet anywhere. And as we see on page 14, they're apparently doing it everywhere at all five of the different vibratory towers. Uh, the Shadow Demons are massing together, uh, conglomerating and forming themselves into a single composite being, a gigantic uh, uh, kaiju monster shadow demon that, uh, <laughs> uh, to, as a kind of a last-ditch effort to uh, destroy the towers before the Monitor can concede and succeed in his plan to save what Earths remain. So that's uh, we get a couple of quick pages here of uh, Firestorm and Killer Frost uh, going to the last remaining tower before shifting suddenly, since we seem to be running out of time, uh, to all five of the towers uh, concurrently. Right, right. Boy, Vandal Savage, not much style on that guy. He, <laughs> the way he's dressed here in Camelot is pretty much the way we see him a lot in the Earth 2 stories yeah. of the Golden Age. It's yeah, like... it's funny how he – I think they actually made a note of that. In a, Again, let me let – me, uh, because he's this is index. this yeah. is Vandal Savage in the time of Camelot, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So here's here's the note in the Crisis Index. Okay. Vandal Savage, based on his unfamiliarity with superheroes in this story, is present in Camelot as a native inhabitant of the period rather than as a time traveler, despite his presence there in All Star Comics number sixty five. Um, it should be remembered that Savage, being immortal, has been alive since the time of the cavemen. Um, and it also says uh, this uh, appearance probably occurs chronologically in between flashbacks in The Flash number 137, hmm. which I guess would be his first appearance in the Silver Age. Okay. Um, mistakenly depicted here wearing his modern-day costume in this story. He probably should be wearing more period clothing, but instead he's wearing that black-and-white jumpsuit that he right. usually wore. In most stories up to crisis, his his costume you could call it. Yeah. Now at the time in All Star Squadron, I don't know if you, I don't know if you have a note about this. There there is a Shining Knight Camelot um, story with Wotan, but in 1942 going on while this issue is out. I don't have a note about that. Um, so I looked that up. So I part of me was thinking, okay, is this 
like the Constantine appearance where it's meant to steer readers to that other title but without the footnote without the footnote but i don't think i don't feel that with this sequence as strongly as i did with the swamp thing mm. you know yeah, john constantine i really don't either it's really yeah. more to remind people that uh, the, the shining knight as a character does exist and it's a tie to yet another period of history real or fictionalized right that the D- another example of the variety that dc offers its readers yeah so even though it was going on at the same time maybe it's just a happy coincidence or there is some kind of synergy um, Happy coincidence seems more likely. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess in terms of Earth 2 history, is this technically how far back Earth 2 history goes? Like if we're, if we're to say that Shining Knight is part of Earth 2 or, you know, part of the All-Star Squadron and all that, in terms of how Earth 2 diverges from Earth 1, right. would this be the most – would this be the earliest point, do you think? Well, no, Outside Vandal, of Vandal Savage. Well, yeah, Vandal Savage, Vandal. we know, is uh, – that's got to be the dawn of Earth 2 history because uh, yeah. probably some people don't even realize this. But Vandal Savage was originally an Earth 2 character, having right. first appeared in the Golden Age. Uh, d- d- Green Lantern was his original opponent, I think uh, I remember. I think so, yeah. Yep. So uh, – yeah, the idea of him being around since the dawn of times and when he was irradiated by that meteor. And then later on, uh, by retcon, the immortal man was present at the same time and became his uh, eternal arch nemesis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so he's been around for the – shaping the entire lengthy history of Earth too. But uh, yeah, this is just a good point you raise as to how much of that uh, history of Earth 2 as distinct from the history of Earth 1 we've actually seen. Yeah, maybe maybe – in terms of the heroes, Shining Knight is that's how far back we go in terms of like connecting to the Earth Two heroes, and right. maybe Vandal Savage up to that point never really, like you said, he doesn't recognize even the, or the the as the note said doesn't even recognize the concept of superheroes, and maybe this is what sets him on his path to um, do everything that he does in the in all those Golden Age comics. Right. That, that could be an interesting. He does say in note. page thirteen, "I must know more if ever I am to control this world." Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Actually, I had in my notes here that he doesn't seem to do much. Here. I mean, it's neat that they acknowledge he was alive at this time, and it helps the, you know, it, it, it adds to the uh, drawing together of the uh, of the of the timeline, the uh, fleshing out of the history that they've built. Um, but I mentioned that he's just in my notes that he's just uh, kind of hanging around, blustering inwardly. I must have my answers, or I swear by my immortal soul there shall be hell to pay. He doesn't really do anything. But, yeah, I, I like your thought here. This, this is just kind of a a, a prelude to a, it's, you know, a retroactive foreshadowing to yeah. what uh, he will be doing later on in his career when so, we finally see him in the 40s. It's almost like an un, we can, can we put that in an untold story, the untold true motivational story behind Vandal Savage mm-hmm. spun out of the crisis. And... Yep, ever since the time of Camelot, he was just biding his time until the first uh, strange costumed ones with amazing powers yeah. show up on Earth in the future. I like that. Yeah. What's with Firestorm's grammar? Firebrand told me we'd probably meet him back here before the monitor sent us back in time. I mean, I guess it's not it's not bad. It's just the use the double use of back, like kind of yeah. as I read it, I was like tripping over it. Well, yeah, the English tenses aren't really meant to accommodate time travel. Yeah. And besides which, fires <laughs> Ronnie Raymond's not an English major to begin with, so right. we're, we're asking a lot of him here. And then Shining Knight showing up. All right, now talking about uh, how this coordinates with what's happening in All-Star Squadron at the time, I will say that his appearance here is something of a continuity error. Oh. If you go back to Shining Knight's origin story, he didn't acquire his golden armor and his enchanted sword and uh, 
Winged Victory didn't get her wings until like the the, the quest that uh, Sir Justin was on. When he, his origin is that he went out to fight an ogre, and in the course of killing the ogre, he was knocked down into a, a crevice, and uh, was he and his horse were frozen in ice and pulled a Captain America, and were stuck like that up until the 1940s when he was released. Hmm. So he really didn't have any adventures in Old Camelot with that armor and the winged horse, except that one quest. He gained those abilities while he was on his way to fight the ogre. Then he fought the ogre and went right into the ice. So Firestorm and uh, Killer Frost, if they're encountering Sir Justin back in Camelot days, he should not have the horse and the magic sword and all of that stuff. So that, that's the sort of thing that Roy Thomas would point out. Right. Okay. There you go. So the, the only other alternative is that uh, this is Sir Justin after he served his dime in the 20th century and then comes back in time. But if that's so, he, would, uh, he wouldn't be so surprised by the appearance of fancily garbed strangers who know right. his name. Right. I mean, he would be familiar with the concept of the superhero. Well, I mean, I guess Wolfman, maybe that's part of Peter Sanderson's uh, research, right? Like they know of that story, but to make it fit the certain conceit, you know, because they, they, there are a couple things that Wolfman plays fast and loose, loose with and making some connections. Um, what was one that we already talked about? Well, It'll come up later, the whole thing of pinning the birth of the multiverse on Krona's experiment wasn't the original experiment. No. Um, or wasn't the original outcome of the experiment, Right. It say. was just to create the positive and well, the creation of the antimatter universe and of evil. Right. And we're going to get another sort of nugget when it comes to the Guardians of the Universe later in issue seven that has the same thing where Marv Wolfman ties certain threads together. So – do you think it has anything to do with that? Do you think maybe it's the whole continuity thing that you're talking about with Sir Justin here? Is it just that? Or maybe he just misunderstood Roy Thomas's notes? Or, or maybe he just didn't read those notes? Or, yeah, and he's just like, I just need to throw them in here. Yeah, I, I think he just did, he didn't know the fine points of Sir Justin's origin and assumed that he had just been adventuring around with a winged horse and a magic sword for a little while before being frozen. Yeah, yeah. Why didn't Monitor send Firebrand back? Oh, to visit Sir – yeah. That's yeah. a very good point. It's her Earth, and she already knows Sir Justin. Right. She'd have a pers- a contact on the ground back there, as it were. Yeah. I mean, unless you didn't, w- unless he didn't want to break up Firestorm and and Killer Frost, because if he would have put Firestorm in to the Wild West, that would break up the whole Fantastic Four concept because you're throwing an ice character. Right. In and there there's too. no way Killer Frost, in her altered emotional state, would consent to go anywhere that he. Anywhere but where Firestorm was going. Ah, but unless you think of Firestorm as Human Torch and Killer Frost as Crystal from the Inhuman. Because <laughs> one of the oh, Killer right Frost now. was Crystal, right? Wasn't nah, it? We're, but we're, that's we're, a little stretch. Yeah, we're stretching that until it snaps there. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they could have just spared one of the other people. Like have, have her stand in for the Invisible Woman instead. Ah, the Shadow Demon's popping out. Why but wouldn't Firestorm think that they're a threat? He already battled them once. Makes you wonder why anyone created him in the first place. Yeah, yeah. like, I was sort of uh, surprised by that a little bit. Yeah, Wolfman doesn't really explore the shadow demons that much. They're just kind of, they're a temporary stumbling block. Like the the, uh, the faceless hordes of the main bad guy. But he's suggesting things about them, like the fact that they all happen to look like the silhouette of the monitor. And yeah. uh, then here Firestorm's wondering to himself why... And in here, they're, they're, all you have to do is freeze them and burn them to make them explode. Uh, so he's wondering to himself why anybody created him in the first place, and that's a question that's not all that uh, 
readily answered. I think we learned eventually that uh, the Anti-Monitor created them by converting some Quardians. The most loyal Quardians or whatever. They they got turned into these guys, yeah. Uh, Yeah, it just seems like Wolfman probably had more in his notes that he never got around to putting to paper. Yeah. Oh, then... Firestorm makes a little crack you know, internally about how even the black bison would have been better in being paired up with a lovesick killer frost. <laughs> if, if those of you who don't know listening, black bison's another one of Firestorm's archvillains. He's a a guy, and he's a big old bare-chested dude So, uh, who is, uh, who is uh, American Indian and possessed by the uh, vengeful spirit of his great-grandfather who hates white people. And so it's kind of a ham-handed uh, – a way of creating a Native American antagonist. Not not the greatest character, hasn't been used in a while, but uh, it's the idea of Firestorm quipping to himself that uh, this big, bare-chested, muscular guy with a dead buffalo on his head would be better than Killer Frost. <laughs> and then at the bottom, uh, Shining Knight uses his magic sword and fires an energy blast from it, which is something his sword has never been seen to be able to do in any of his other appearances. So again... I think it may be just a case of uh, Wolfman and company not uh, knowing as much about Sir Justin as they probably should have. Unless – can I be, play devil's advocate? Unless Always. in Roy Thomas's notes he said, you know what would be kind of cool? Could you use the Shining Knight this way? Like, you know, I've, I kind of always wanted to explore his sword differently. Like, hmm. here's – if maybe have, this is a something that Thomas had been planning to do with him. and Yeah, maybe and maybe sort of suggested, you know um, – if you ever come across something that he could be used this way, this is how I would kind of write him, and maybe that's what. So maybe. perhaps this, perhaps this is a version of Sir Justin from further along his personal timeline than he is in current issues of All Star Squad. Yeah, like after he's been around for a while, his powers have increased, and then eventually he's sent back in time to Camelot again after some time in twentieth century, and and maybe he's just kind of. Maybe Merlin put a spell on him to make him forget his time in the 20th century, and that's why he doesn't recognize superheroes when he sees them. Well, I mean, maybe it's just that he doesn't recognize those superheroes. Maybe he's like, you know, why would they know my name? He doesn't know that Firestorm learned it from Firebrand. Mm. And so. Firestorm doesn't bother to mention it to Yeah, him. right. <laughs> so just to play devil's advocate. Who knows? Maybe you win the no prize. Maybe. Shall we wrap up with this page 14? Yep. No, we're, we're past the two-and-a-half-hour mark here. So oh, so we're, oh, we're not at three yet. Not so. just yet. So this, that's good. We'll have time to wrap this one up, and then I think we'll do what we said. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap this episode up right on this page 14. So. All right. Great. So, and this is just a nice, neat 16-panel uh, uh, grid here on page 14. As we see uh, sequentially the uh, shadow demons forming together into a single massive mega shadow demon. And then we see four such shadow demons menacing in, in order four different vibratory towers. We see the one in the Old West on top of the old mine shaft. We see the one towering over ancient Atlantis of Arion. Uh, we see the one uh, in the background with the uh, wrecked Statue of Liberty's torch in the foreground, which tells us it's the Great Disaster, and then the, the one in uh, World War II-era Markovia. And on the next uh, – the, the bottom row of panels, we see the, the, the characters that have been dispatched by the Monitor to each of those locales in the same order uh, looking on in horror. We see uh, the uh, 
Fantastic Four wannabes and the Old West heroes in the first panel, Obsidian and Arion plus Lady Chian in the second and in, in Atlantis, uh, Earth 2 Superman and uh, Dawnstar and Commandy there in uh, the Great Disaster era, and then finally uh, Geoforce, Dr. Polaris, since Ted Kord was pulled out of the game by the Monitor last issue, with the World War II heroes. And no, uh, no, no dialogue on these on this page. Just nothing but uh, narrative captions. Yeah, twelve panels. You said sixteen, just to oh, you're, make well, sure. I'm sorry. Yeah. You're right. I've, math was yeah, math is pants' specialty. <laughs> but yes, it is three rows of four panels. That does work out to twelve. Thank yeah. you. Just in case people were listening and they start typing, you said sixteen. It's supposed to be twelve. I I trust our listeners not to be that not as anal as we are. What do you make of that little line there? Two worlds. So, as you said, it's all narrative stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, um, in that narrative box up there at the along the top row, it happens in every era: Earth One, Earth Two, simultaneous dark shadow demons merging. Two worlds separated by a mere seconds worth of time. Not even that much. So I mean, is that is that how I mean? I'm I'm used to the Earth being separated by vibration, right? So it's really more like a, a, a tiny microscopic fraction of it, like a picosecond or something. So I guess, oh, okay. So I see. If you sort of think of it, vibrations in mathematical terms, or or in uh, in the rate that they vibrate, I guess that could be time oriented. Vibration right? is yeah. movement, and movement is measurable in time. Right. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. I like that. But, yeah, it's definitely a little – quite a bit less than a second that separates right. them. Right. And uh, the narrative there, Dark Shadow Demons, we've, we've, we sort of tracked that the first person that actually called them Shadow Demons was Killer Frost back in issue one. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, as we get the name, you know, either in narrative or whatever, I'm sort of just keeping track of seeing who actually says what. So uh-huh. this is a little bit of a tangent, but – the shadow demons are a trope themselves when it comes to events. It felt like every DC event had to have their own version of a shadow demon. So if you think of um, uh, Millennium had the Manhunters, right? Um, what were the other? some of the other ones? Legends had the Warhounds. That's not quite so much of a, a thing, but... Um, our worlds at war had all the little Imperiex probes um, that were similar to the Big Bad. Infinite Crisis had the Omax that wreaked havoc all over the place. What uh, did Zero Hour have? Did they? Did I'm, it have an? I'm uh, not remembering. Well, I guess the, the the master manipulator has to have a bunch of foot soldiers. Has to have his enemy hordes. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of uh, the the Team Titans actually, hmm. since they all turned out to be just like time wraiths. Right, right. Um, Blackest Night certainly had the Black Lanterns. Oh, you yeah, know. in spades. Yeah, so I think that's kind of – I mean it may not be a universal trope, but it's it definitely popped up here and there in a lot of places. Like, oh, that's their version of the Shadow Right, Demon. to generate the sense of apocalyptic terror that these events try to inspire in the characters and readers, there, there need to be lots and lots of uh, minor bad guys swarming everywhere. And disposable ones too. Mm-hmm. Like if you, if, you, if you kill them off, you're not – going to yell at the heroes for battling yeah, them and destroying excuse them. to let the heroes cut loose you know yeah, really that's great yeah yeah um i think that's that's all i've got for uh, page 14 okay well let me uh i'll just quickly read through some other things um 
the middle panel has references to other places within the DC universe across the Gulf of time and space on earth and Saturn and Mars, which could be a direct link to gem son of Saturn, John Jones, the Manhunter of Mars. Certainly been relevant in the mid eighties. They brought in, and then he says far from far off Vega, which we've already seen to the artificial light of inner world Scartaris, which is the home of the warlord. Um, so I thought that was nice that they are touching up on all that stuff because uh, Jem was up to issue eleven by this point, hmm. and I'm I'm sure he does appear in however minor capacity before the series is over. Yeah, and just one other little thing here: the panel that says the ordinary people, the workers, the teachers, the leaders, and the followers all can only stare in shock and horror and fear, and um, let's see that. That feels like a lot of what the conversation that Supergirl and Batgirl were having about, um, you know, Batgirl's like, what can I do? And Supergirl's like, look, everybody plays their part, even the fireman, whatever she says, the fireman, the policeman or whatever. So I thought that was a nice little narrative continuation going on from here it is, Barbara. There are thousands of people out there without powers like my policeman, fireman, soldier. So. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to bring it, keeping keeping it at the human level too, like not only about what the heroes see, but what right. we might be experiencing. Sense of scope, but also sense of scale. Yeah, and Wolfman is he's doing a good job of paying attention to the macro and micro levels. Right, right. And then that's it. All right. Well, that's been something of a marathon, but we are marathon men here at the Crisis Tapes. <laughs> um, so, uh, thank you for listening along. I'm sure a lot of you out there are just. Burst in with comments to make, and we look forward to reading them all. You can go to thecomicforums.vanillaforums.com to leave whatever feedback you may have for Peter and me. And uh, we will be back with you uh, probably sooner than you think to uh, talk about the rest of this uh, issue, which is uh, the fourth and final uh, chapter in what I consider the first act of the Crisis on Infinite Earths narrative. So until then, be good and uh, watch out for shadow demons. (laughs) 